Greetings and welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Hard News on Friday night on DDS Radio. So, welcome, welcome on this amazing day of liberation of the light, the 5-5, the Cinco de Mayo, the Everything Day, the Lunar Eclipse, the Resox Festival, the Full Moon, in Scorpio, eclipsing, and Buddha's birthday, and yeah, the Triple Divine Human Day. So, this 555 Liberation Portal is happening this evening. So, we're on the Red Magnetic Human, which is a new way we're beginning today of the human, the new human after this day. We're really Shedding with that no longer serves us and moving right on ahead. So let's take a few moments and uh, go into our heart space as we begin this evening with this energy. So take a few deep breaths, breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, slowly, gently. Let go of that dress of the day. And hear that calling drum, drumming, calling. To go into our heart space. Gather with your guides and guardians, your angels, your spirit team, your healing team, your ancestors, your totem. Those you like to journey with the Kimi drum with, that linker of world. There's a council fire in the center. Come in close. Make that perfect circle around that council fire. In that virtual way we know how to do. As we call in the seven galactic directions in the mind calendar, let's just go into that unity consciousness space. from the east, the house of light. May wisdom open in the dawn that is upon so that we may see things clearly. We welcome from the north, the house of night. May wisdom mature among us so that we may see everything from within. transformed in the right action so that we might accomplish what must be done.
thou, house of the eternal sun, may right action give us the harvest, so that we might enjoy the fruits of the planetary being. We welcome from above the house of paradise, where the star people and the ancestors gather. May their blessings reach us now. Let us greet from below all the beings of the earth. May the beating of the crystal planet's heart bless us with its harmony so that we might end war. Welcome from the center, source of the galaxy, which is everywhere at once. May everything be recognized as the light of mutual love. I am Hunaku, even Maya, Imaho. I am Hunaku, even Maya, Imaho. I am Hunaku, even Maya, Imaho. All hail the harmony of mind and nature. All my relations in Los Angeles. I am another you. You are another me. So let's just take a few moments. Just stay wherever that drum beat took you and see. Take a look at the Mayan record of day for today and for the week ahead. And this is such an amazing day. It's 5 5, it's Cinco de Mayo, and we saw full moon. It's a flowering day. And today is the red magnetic human. So we're beginning a new wave. And this is where we will be busy for the next 13 days. So we're working with this healing aspect of Ed. And um, Ed is about... um, (laughs) Where did I I put that? Yeah. Yeah, attractive. And purpose and wisdom and free will is Ed. The human and, and the um, the tone, that magnetic tone, the one is about influence. No, that's really it. Hang on. Oh yeah, unify and purify and attracting is magnetic tone. The three words we want to use for our mantra to describe that magnetic tone at the beginning of this new way. So here it goes. I unify in order to influence, attracting wisdom. I seal the process of free will with the magnetic tone of purpose. I am guided by the power of my own power, devil. So it's like a, a devil human here, <laughs> the twin flame is with us. So our, that's our guide today for the tone uh, position is 
it's as the human and the analog is the hand or that's the support team, the hand, the healing hand. And our child's gift for the day is eat the wind and the occult that we're working with tonight, of all things, <laughs> on this day is Maluk the moon. No kidding, this full moon. So that's appropriate. Always synchronizes, doesn't it? <laughs> and so now let's look at, at Ab a little bit more being that healing aspect. It's about working with the enlightenment of humankind. So we do that starting with ourselves and we activate cosmic consciousness with this energy as we attune to spirit. So let's embrace these gifts of being that human servant warrior, looking at our abundance, our contact with other dimensions, and let go of any dependence on the analytical mind as we embrace these energies today. And then moving on to tomorrow at the portal day. Can't you can't get, let go of all that energy all at once. So <laughs> it's the red lunar skywalker. So it's about the moon. Lunar tone is is definitely about the moon, and it's about that. Um, yeah, the balance of the yin and the yang. And then it's just two skywalkers. So the skywalker is the a warrior aspect. It is working with we work with our focus and and striving towards self illumination and clarity of mind. So we embrace these gifts from the skywalker, that gift of strength, that that, that ability to bend dimensions. And we let go of any resistance we face or any belief in illumination. And it's a portal day, so we have that in extra dimensionality, which is important because we're in it now. <laughs> so we keep it going. And then on Sunday, moving right along, we will be that white electric wizard. So it's a three each. It's a visionary aspect, the wizard, the magician. So we're working with the illumination for others, and we're working with clarity of mind and purpose for ourselves and others. And we embrace these gifts of that shaman energy, that being that jaguar priestess woman, and working with jaguar medicine, integrity, working with accordance with divine will. Let's let go of any control or personal power issues or any manipulation. As we embrace these energies on Sunday, and then on Monday it's the four men, the blue self-existing eagle. That's another visionary aspect. So we're seeing that big picture and we're working with our, our commitment to service and moving consciousness to source and reconnecting with all creation. So we embrace these gifts of independence, that belief in ourselves. As we let go of any feelings of despair or dissociation or the illusion of separateness. And moving along to Tuesday, it's another portal day and it's a Five keys, so that's that warrior in the overtone. Five is activating that warrior energy. So let's trust in our journey and bring awareness of right action as we communicate with the divine and access that cosmic consciousness. We let go of any limitations or restrictions or any hesitation. And then here we are on. Wednesday with a sixth Kaban, so it's a double Kaban because that sixth tone also is guided by the Kaban as well. 
the tone God. So working with that earth energy, the Kaban, it's a healing aspect. And it's, the six is that rhythmic tone. So it's, it's keeping that momentum going. We're, we're into it, the rhythm. <clears throat> so our work is being the, as being that keeper of the earth is being aware of earth energy and listening to her and embracing these gifts of that access to planetary harmony and being that balancing point and being with our intuition. So let's let go of any separation, any failure to read science. As we embrace these energies Thursday and then Friday when we come back, we'll work with that etnob energy as in the resonant tone. So the resonant it's um, the mirror. It's the warrior aspect. So we work on our groundedness on this day and that wise use of honesty and and that self-understanding that comes with that mirror magic. So let's embrace these gifts of scrying the unseen, the gift of fluidity and persistence. As we let go of any illusion of separateness, any fear or any abandonment, Anyways, let them go, and we'll talk about that more, some more next Friday when we come back, working with that resonant tone. We're working from the top of the mountain, so we got there. <laughs> it's that midpoint between 1 and 13, or 13 and 20. Both of them are seven, so it's a powerful number to work with, that resonant tone, and we'll talk about it more next Friday. We get it. So... Lord willing. <laughs> and I want to take a few minutes to change our hat and talk about the housekeeping. As we are a list of support radio program, it's each of us that make it happen. Each week we have expenses with DBS Radio for three shows that we have here. And um, uh, let's see, we need well, somewhere around $300 a month. It's a little more than that if we catch up for, for February. <laughs> and uh, so there you go. We need this week, we have $255, but we need $61.25 to complete that payment for this last week. And then this week, we need um, $300. And Oh, $289 even for this week, but um, that adds with the 61, that's 35025 altogether that we need to uh, finish out last week and complete this week by Sunday. So that'd be good. <laughs> we'll see what we can do. We can do our best. And so as we are generous, here's how we make a, a contribution to our uh, support for these programs at BBS Radio, go to bbsradio.com and click on Radio Station 1. You'll see the, the schedule on Radio Station 1. You'll, you want to look on Thursdays for the program that we have on Thursdays on Radio Station 1 at Night at the Roundtable with the panel. So if you click on that icon, that takes you to our account where you can make that donation using your bank card. So go into your heart space, see what's yours to give, and then you can also access that icon on this program on Friday nights at the 8 o'clock hour, and this is the um, 
Central Time now. So they're both of them on 8 o'clock hour. Um, both of these on radio station one. So Friday night, hard news with Tara Rama at the 8 o'clock hour. Click on that icon that takes you to our account where you can make that donation. And we can get the one paid that was due last week and paid this week at the same time, maybe. Let's see what we can do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking that action. We also have a program on Radio Station 2 tomorrow on Saturdays at 3.30 hour Central. And it is the true history, history of the Sarah and our galactic origins with Tara and Rama. Click on that icon there and that'll also take you to our account. So thank you for taking that action. Thank you for participating in this way as we gather each week. If you you're new. Don't be shy. Just do it. <laughs> it's easy to do. Go to bbsradio.com. Make it happen. Thank you so much for your contributions and all the ways that you contribute in your life. We're grateful for your presence here. We honor you. So we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And they have two days that they had deadline bills. On Monday, they have two bills that need to be paid. One is 135 for the computer. And then the other one uh, on Monday is the Verizon bill, and it's $44. So that's total on Monday that they need is uh, $179. So and then on Wednesday, they have two bills due. The Internet bill is $134.72. And... The gas bill is due on Wednesday, and it is $151.31. That's total $286.03. All that together is $465 is what they need for bills next Monday and Wednesday. So, uh, yeah, we can assist with that. That'd be awesome uh, to make that happen in a good way, as I know they need their internet, and they need their gas. <laughs> And all that. So we're grateful for your assistance in all this. And uh, don't be shy. If you're new, just jump in. I know they have a way of using it. So they also need money for ET, their mechanic, who needs $496. The $400 he's due on labor from uh, last February, and I know he needs his money. So um, let's, let's be gracious and and assist that way and make that happen. The $96 is for a spare tire. It'd be good to have that anytime, but uh, yeah. So that's what we need for ET, 496 And then what else is there? Oh, the personal expenses for food and gas and all the other things that happen. $200, we'll do it. And uh, so lots of gratitude for you taking that action. Here's how we do it. We go to rainbowroundtable.net, and that's the web address for Rainbow Roundtable. So let's click on that menu grid at the top of the page or the bottom, depending on what uh, device you're using. <laughs> and uh, as you click on that, then you'll see that um, a donate link near the bottom of that list. And uh, click on that. That links you to Rama's PayPal account or the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. And <clears throat> there's a place on that page to it 
access the trans family by looking for that little heart there, and that little heart connects you to the trans option. And for that, you need Rama's email, and that's what you'd be asked to put in is the email address of the person you're gifting. That email is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999, at hotmail.com. And I'll say it again, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999, 49, at hotmail.com. And then, what else? Oh, yeah, as you're sending something, and, oh, and by the way, it doesn't matter which way you do it. It just goes a little further with a friend's option, but we're grateful for all of your uh, donations, no matter how they show up. So lots of gratitude. As you need it, the mailing address is, oh, wait a minute, I want to give you the, uh, as you're sending something, let Rollin know, and his email for that is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999-39, that comcast.net. And so as you're sending something, shoot them an email, let them know what you said, when you sent it. And uh, that helps a lot. So thank you for taking that follow through. And then as you also need it, the mailing address is Romney Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, P-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280280. And that is in Santa Cruz. New Mexico, 87505. No, 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 no. I said that completely wrong. 87. <laughs> oh, no. Now I've really forgot it. <laughs> 567. There you go. <laughs> I know you're correcting me if I'm wrong, but it's 87567 for the zip code. And that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. And that's all the information you need. So. Lots of gratitude. Thank you for all the ways that you show up in your lives. 13 thank yous, honey in the heart. And I'm passing this Cinco de Mayo talking stick, and it's got flowers all over it because it's a, it's the full moon, and two of the flowers are eclipsing in Scorpio, and there's a trip to divine dance of humanity day and the liberation of light. And let's go through this liberation portal, number 555, greetings. <laughs> Tara and Rama, this talking stick has all kinds of festivities all over it because it's Buddha's birthday too. And a lunar eclipse, that's why some of the flowers are black. It's a greeting, Tara and Rama, here it comes with fairies and feathers and all the little people. It's a talking stick. <laughs> right, Bert. Right, Bert. Thank you. What, what, what did you say about black flowers? Oh, I said the, it's, the, it's the flower moon, but it's being eclipsed. There's a lunar oh. eclipse, and so it, the, it gets covered up, and so there's a couple of flowers that are denoting the lunar eclipse. Okay, I never it's thought. It's a very creative talking stick. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, thank you. Here we come. Here we come. All right. And, and I did forget to talk about NFTs, and I don't have an address I need to give people for how to do that. So we'll oh, talk well, about just, all the conference just, call, okay? just For right now, we just say go to the request for assistance that's on our website. And at the end, <coughs> Micah has a whole letter there that tells everything you need to know about NFT. 
And I, I just want to repeat that the King of Swords told us, told Rama, that it's going to work. In other words, the way they've got it figured, it's going to work. And they have a way for everybody to, I mean, you can request people that you know to join. Yet there's a way for you to purchase at 62.50, 100 leads. And that will add momentum and it it that's working and there's over a million people on the list that can be fed into those leads for everybody so uh good good job and Nasara now all right i pass this talking stick who do who wants it you want it right up here oh uh, i guess um the story here is Happy Wesak Lunar Eclipse Full Moon. The energy says are as high as uh, my tongue will allow the words to come out. We only got three minutes to talk, and then we got to play our thing. Okay, I can just say, like the nameless ones told me, along with the poppy lady from the Weesock Valley today, work with the energies of this full moon lunar eclipse and focus on the violet flame, sending love and the radiance of Lord Buddha. All we are saying is give peace a chance. This is the story front and center with the situations on the planet as serious as they are. And they are, you know, they talk about that funny little clock, a hundred seconds to midnight. And I just got to say, Captain Astar knows exactly when to show up and let us know the next story. And, um, Oh, Mani Padme Hum. <clears throat> you can do that in 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 your heart and your mind throughout this time. And also, Om Charambakam Yajamahe Sugandim Putti Pushti Vartanam Uvarukamiba Bandanat Mrikti or Mukshya Mamutat. And there, yes, Rama was saying there's a lots of craft in the skies around there and around the whole planet right now. Yes. And the lunar eclipse is ushering in the energies of Lord Maitreya. Maitreya gold, as we work with these energies, it will lift us up out of the maya. It takes a disciplined will to bring the energies up. This is why we teach the martial arts in our Jedi temple. The nameless one is saying that. So we have a Jedi temple. Yes. At some umpteen thousand feet above sea level. That's another thing. You've got a different air to breathe up there. Hmm. Yeah. Going to get some strong lungs. Stay in the high heart. We, we could tell you all kinds of stories, yet the most important thing right now is to focus on the violet flame and send love. Satnam Namaste. All right, we're going to go right to it.
there's going to be a big challenge on the 19th of this month. That's two weeks from today. Two weeks from today. Friday, two weeks ahead. And our, what can you tell everybody what her name is, Rama? Uh, let me see if I can print it. Um, oh, that's okay. We just get started. Sil- Sylvia Surya Daya. Yes, there you go. All right, so we'll listen. This is 16 minutes. Let's let's get in our listening mode. Here we go. Okay. 19th of May, there will be a very special astrological constellation, and it could be that we all will remember this day precisely and that we will experience a huge Shake up. And before I start, a very, very warm welcome to you. And if you like my videos and also my energy updates, my astrological forecasts, please register for my free newsletter right here below the video. And please subscribe to my YouTube channel and hit the notification bell so you will be informed whenever I upload a new video. And now let's start. What will happen at the 19th of May? At this day, we have a new moon. And the new moon is the first new moon after the total solar eclipse, which happens on the 20th of April. And this solar eclipse is a total solar eclipse. Those energy of those eclipses are very, very important. They are important times of upheavals for the whole world. And maybe you can remember the last solar eclipse in October 2022. And the Queen of England, she died short before the solar eclipse. And maybe you think, why have the death of the Queen something to do with me personal? But her death was the beginning, the beginning of a new liberation, a breakdown of old outside structures and regulations and traditions, those traditions who do not serve us anymore and which are not relevant for us anymore. But it is start, it is first the beginning. And maybe you have or probably you have heard of the problems of the banking market at this time, especially in the USA, because of the bankruptcy of smaller banks. By the way, this matches with what I predicted about this astrological event we will see on the 15th of March. This is all about this energy. And we see now like a domino effect that a lot of people withdraw their money from their bank account. And the fear and the danger is high that something similar could happen like in 28, where we experienced the last big and pretty violent crash at the financial markets and the real estate markets. Now let's look. What is so special about the 19th of May, astrological, and why this date stands out? 
And I show you here the horoscope and I am speaking, speaking of Vedic astrology. This is a completely other system than the normal known Western astrology because we relate to the real position of the stars in the sky, like you can watch it now or with a star app with your phone. Because the Western astrology system, they relate to a, a zero point every year in the sign of Aries. And this is not the real position of the stars. And at the 19th of May, the planet Mars is in opposition to Pluto. And you can watch it in the sky because Pluto you can't see, but you can, you can find it with your app. And Mars is nearly exact in opposition of the planet Pluto. Mars is at five degrees and Pluto is at six degrees. And in the Vedic astrology, the moon is also very important. Not only the sun, like in the Western tropical astrology, because the moon is all about who we perceive our reality. And Pluto is in the lunar mansion of Uttara Ashada. We call the lunar mansions also the nakshatras. There are 27 nakshatras in the uh, zodiac and we use. And this nakshatra Uttara Ashada is connected to the planet sun. And the sun is all about leadership and positions of power. And Pluto is also a planet of power and Pluto is at six degrees and this is a very special position and Pluto is retrograde at this time. Pluto return in the horoscope of the USA and Pluto needs about 245 years to travel through the whole zodiac. He is the slowest the most far away planet from our solar system and it is the slowest moving planets of the 12 planets we use in astrology. Its position in the chart and the Pluto in the transit is now returning to his start position in the horoscope of the constitution of the USA in the year 1776. And that is very, very important. And this is the second house and the second house in the horoscope. And it is all about finances and money. And Pluto stands for a great transformation, but also the destruction of old structures and new beginnings. And Pluto is connected to money and power. And Mars is directly in opposition of Pluto. And that means that Mars triggers the energy of Pluto. And on this day, the 19th of May, the sun and the moon are in the sign of Taurus. And Taurus is related to the banking system, to our financial system, to the economy. And it is the first new moon after the last solar eclipse. It is still in the time zone of influence of the energy of the solar eclipse. And in Taurus, on three degree, there is a fixed star. And this fixed star is connected to violence and almost exactly with this new moon at 
four degrees. The sun and the moon are together when there is a new moon and they are in the sign of Taurus at four degrees. The meaning of this fixed star who sits at three degrees is his name is Al Gol. And it is all about to lose your head. And it is all about violence, which is mostly related to losing the leadership and losing the leader position. And the sun and the moon are at this state in the nakshatra of Kritika, the lunar mansion. And this is also connected to the sun and to leadership. And this indicates that there will be a big shift in leadership, maybe also in the position of a president or a world leader. With this special combination we have here with this fixed star, Algol. And the planet Mars is also in the sign of Cancer. And there Mars is weak. And Mars stands for real estate. And I think that the prices of the houses will go down. Also with this special energy. And there is also a connection between Mars and Ketu. Ketu is the lower lunar node and Mars is in the sign of Cancer and Mars is an indicator for a real estate and Mars is a fire planet and the sign of Cancer is connected to the element of water. So Mars is weak in the sign of Cancer and I think we will see that the house prices will go down and the connection between Mars and Ketu is a very special connection because Mars stands for war and for aggression and K2, the lower lunar node, stands often connected to losses and to death. And this combination also sometimes it stands for terrorism is not really a good one. And we have Venus. Venus is in the sign of Gemini and Venus is in the nakshatra, which is called Ardra. And the symbol of Ardra is a teardrop and it is connected to sadness and that we have to let things go. And it is connected also to losses. And Venus, the planet Venus, is at this time, at the 19th of May, out of control. What does it mean? The planets are normally not only in the um, latitude degrees, we are looking on the horoscope, there are also the longitude uh, degrees that we have, and they are normally in a, in a, in a range about 23 degrees from the equator to the upper border and also 23 degrees to the lower border. And when a planet is not between those degrees and it stands out, then it is, we cannot really control the energy of it. And Venus at this day is at 25 degrees. And Venus also is the indicator for money, for banks and for business and for values. And that is also very important. And at least we have a very special connection between three houses, three houses that are the air signs. We have Venus in the sign of Gemini and in the nakshatra of Rahu because Atra, I told you, Atra is connected to the to the upper lunar node and 
also we have Ketu in the sign of Libra. Libra is also an air sign. And Ketu is in Swati, in the nakshatra Swati. And Swati is also connected to Rahu. And we have the planet Saturn. Saturn is in the sign of Aquarius, which is also an air sign. And it is also in the nakshatra of Rahu, in Shatabishak. And this energy of Rahu is a big one. It is like a storm and it connects those three air signs. And the air is an element which is so important for everybody of us. We breathe the air. We breathe the same air. This connects all, us all together. And it is like with Rahu. Rahu is like the storm. It is like a big cleanup process which is taking place at this time. And Rahu is also the energy of the unknown. We cannot really know what is coming. It is unpredictable and it is always about the future and it is always about expansion. Everything which is energetically active at this time will be intensified because of Rahu. And Rahu is also about headlessness and the air element is also about communication and connection. What we will see is a big shift in power, a big shift from the power of the leaders in the power of the people. That is the real reason behind all of them. And this is not happening in one day or in one year. But this shift is taken place slowly and surely, and it opens doors for a new economic system. Maybe it is not so easy to achieve this in the next years because we have to learn to think in another way, to become a better version of ourselves and to be more aware of ourselves and our potential and who we really are. And this all has to grow. It all has to grow from the inside to the outside. So there will be struggles and problems and try and error moments for everybody. But we will create with this a better and a fairer financial system and a fairer economic system for the world. And it is a big shift in power. And one last thing, Saturn, the planet Saturn, is located at the first time since 30 years in the nakshatra of Shatabishak. And there his intention, his intention is to create something new, to create something positive for the good of humanity. It is a big healing. And it is also connecting us together. But Saturn often demands that we have first to clean up, to see the mistakes that what has led us to the position where we are now and to understand and then to create when we see all those mistakes and understand what was wrong, then we can create something new and something better. And Saturn helps us to find the right way to do this in the next years and to start to work on it. And what I know is that when the outside is so loud and 
we have a crisis and we experience this time that the storm on the outside is so loud, then we should remember, we should remember that we are the storm. There is nothing to fear and there is nothing outside of us. And if we live from this inner knowing, from this inner understanding and this inner power, then you will find your way for the good, for your good future and a good present and to have a fulfilled and happy life, regardless what is happening on the outside. And if this is useful, please share it, share this video with your friends and Thank you so, so much. I love you. Michaels is celebrating mom with Bobo deals on everything to make a one-of-a-kind gift. Deals in May 13th. Okay, Rama, the phone numbers. Right, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. All right, seven, say it real quick again. Seven two zero seven one six seven three zero one, and the pin code is three five three eight six three pound. See you there for the next hour, everyone, and I'll be right back here at BBS Radio, best radio in the universe, at the top of the following hour. Satnam. Looking forward to having a little chat together. Namaste. Just a second.
everyone can't go do this to clear out stuck poop fast fiber helps you poop right nope according to new york's top gut doctor fiber just adds bulk and weight to poop and that might sound like a good thing but it's a lot like adding more cars to a traffic jam not to mention
Hi, precious heart. Thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. The month of May is always a very spiritual and powerful time. This year, we have a unique opportunity to utilize the gifts of May in ways that will allow us to co-create a tremendous shift into higher frequencies of light. May is considered a mystical month because of several activities of light that take place during that time. The first of May is known as St. Germain's Ascension Day. On May 1st, every year, St. Germain and his legions of the violet flame bless the earth with a greatly empowered influx of the violet flame of God's infinite perfection. Every son and daughter of God has stationed within our aura a magnificent fifth dimensional violet flame archangel from St. Germain's legions of light. The assistance from these selfless messengers of God have been blessing each of us for several years. The company of heaven is revealing today that throughout the entire month of May in 2023, our Father, Mother, God have given St. Germain and his fifth dimensional violet flame archangels permission to exponentially expand the violet flame of cosmic forgiveness within every newly balanced and elevated holy breath we take. We have been given a very powerful invocation that has been building in momentum through the unified efforts of lightworkers around the world. It is a perfect invocation to utilize throughout the month of May if you have the heart call to do so. Whenever you begin your invocations, always go within, center yourself, and take a few deep conscious breaths. I now invoke the violet flame of cosmic forgiveness. I am my I am presence, and I am one with the I am presence of every person on earth. Together, we invoke the violet flame of God's cosmic forgiveness with the power and might of a thousand suns. Instantaneously, this sacred fire transmutes back into light every thought, feeling, word, action, memory, and belief that I or the rest of humanity have ever misqualified in any time frame or dimension, both known and unknown. And so it is. After invoking the violet flame of cosmic forgiveness, I feel the power of this gift of light flowing from my heart flame into the heart flame of every person on earth. I know and accept that throughout the month of May, my I am presence is amplifying this influx of cosmic forgiveness 
moment by moment with every holy breath. Next, all transmuted energy is permanently sealed in a force field of God's comprehensive divine love. Another reason May is considered a mystical month is because every year for the entire month of May, Mother Mary opens her Temple of the Immaculate Heart in the inner realms to the masses of humanity. This means that while we are in our finer body as we sleep at night, our I Am Presence will escort us into Mother Mary's Temple of the Immaculate Heart. Every May, Mother Mary assists the sons and daughters of God on earth with whatever we need in order to balance and expand our mortal victorious threefold flame in our heart. Step by step, she is helping each of us to reverse the adverse effects that our fall from grace has had on our earthly bodies and our ability to communicate with our own divinity. This year, Mother Mary is going to guide the I Am Presence of each and every one of us through various initiations that will help us to assimilate and integrate the sacred knowledge and the innate latent abilities that are encoded within the 12 fifth dimensional crystalline solar strands of our recently activated DNA. Mother Mary and these initiations will further prepare humanity for the activations that will be co-created through the unified efforts of heaven and earth during the 37th Annual World Congress on Illumination in August the 12th through the 17th in 2023. Another important event that usually occurs during the month of May is known as the WESAC Festival. This involves the second of the three full moon festivals of spring. Of course, only the Northern Hemisphere is experiencing spring at this time, but the light that bathes the earth during the full moons and the global celebrations that take place in the sun cycles of Aries, Taurus, and Gemini bless all life on this blessed planet. Springtime begins in the Northern Hemisphere every year with the March equinox and the influx of the Mother of Pearl resurrection flame. The first full moon following the March equinox is celebrated as the Passover full moon, which is acknowledged by both Jews and Christians. Easter is celebrated the first Sunday following the Passover full moon. The Passover full moon is the first full moon festival of spring. During the celebrations of Passover and Easter, 
billions of people around the world focus reverently on God and their spiritual traditions. Jesus is very much involved with this full moon festival. During this time, he floods the collective consciousness of humanity with sacred knowledge of the path of divine love and the oneness of all life. This assistance from Jesus is reminding the masses of humanity that divine love, unity consciousness, and the oneness of all life are our natural birthright as sons and daughters of God. This annual influx of divine love, unity consciousness, and the knowledge of the oneness of all life has been occurring for millennia and has been instrumental in humanity's awakening process. The second full moon festival of spring is known as the Wiesak Festival, which occurs during the full moon in the sun cycle of Taurus. This festival will occur in a few days on May 5th, 2023. At that time, we will also be blessed with a very powerful lunar eclipse. During this full moon, the Buddha will empower his infinite enlightenment through the recently unveiled golden Buddha of enlightenment pulsating within every person's heart flame. The light that Buddha reflects is the divine enlightenment that emanates from the very heart of God. The third festival of spring takes place during the full moon in the sun cycle of Gemini. This festival is known as the Goodwill Festival of Humanity. During this full moon, which will occur on June 3rd, excuse me, June 4th, 2023, the path of divine love and oneness associated with Jesus and the divine enlightenment associated with Buddha will expand exponentially. This influx of light enhances humanity's ability to unify our hearts and minds with each other and the divine heart and mind of our Father, Mother, God. In our free weekly vlogs, we will share celestial guidance step by step that will help to prepare us for the unfolding events we will co-create this year. These vlogs are available without charge on our website and on YouTube. Dear one, for additional information about the 37th Annual World Congress on Illumination and how you can add to the light of the world during that life-transforming event, no matter where you are on the planet, please go to our website, eraofpeace.org. The next deadline for the Early Bird Special will be May 10th. When you are in a state of listening grace, 
feel the gratitude pouring forth from our Father, Mother, God, and the company of heaven in appreciation for your willingness to add to the light of the world. You are blessed beyond your knowing. God bless you. I look forward to being with you next week. Greetings, dear ones. I am crying of magnetic service. There would be those who would wonder about the process to the degree they would say impossible it is for a human being to switch this quickly from one side of the veil to the other, to be literally with one foot with a higher self. And I'll say this to you, the impossibility of it would only be there if the higher self did not want the human being to cross. You must know this, that as my partner spoke to you about the love of God, this is the way of it. For God is the parent energy, and this parent energy sees you in your, and loves you in this fashion. We would give anything to void the rules of free choice, to show ourselves in a fashion that made you understand we're here. But on this planet of free choice, it is you who must open the door to us. We stand like the angels we are in your lives, walking the whole duration. At the point at which you are born on this planet, the angels surround the table or they surround the pool or they surround whatever it is that you have chosen to come in. And they stay with you. In those beginning weeks, you might see the infant with the wide eyes looking at the angels. The infant will point, sometimes the infant will, will even smile, even in two weeks, three weeks. Because the infant recognizes us. All of you did it, all of you did it. Indeed, in those early days where there is so much change in those early days when there's so much to get used to and there's so much shift being out of the womb. The angels are a comfort to the infant and you all were there. And slowly that reality slips from you. Slowly. But all of you have seen it.
Elige el mostrador cuando ordenes por anticipado en el app de McDonald's y puedes saltar de la fila y obtener tu comida más rápido. When the infant looks into what you call pleased with what they see. These are the same angels. They don't age, you do. They've been with you all your lives. They walk beside you. They came in with you. They'll leave with you. And if you never speak to them, they will say nothing. But that is the agreement. But oh, dear human being, if you just give us one little space of intent, and you say, dear God, show me that, that I'm loved, you open the floodgate. For this is when we enter your life to the degree you will allow us. This is when we will give you what you ask for. Begin the synchronicity. Begin the teaching. Begin the hand-holding so there is no more being alone. Fill you up to such a degree that you will not be concerned with disease or age or drama. And all you will see is the promise of who you are. This has always been the way of it since the day we began. There are still those who wonder about the process, this process of channeling. It works when the channeler is clear. It works when the bias is set aside. It is the way of it and has always been the way of it. All scripture on the planet written by men. Take a look at how this works, human being. For you, by yourselves, are responsible for all the prophecy, for all the good things that you would find in those words that comfort you, you say are from God, all written by men and women. And so it is again that we come before you with information. The information given for those who are in the room in what you would call real time, for those who are listening and hearing in what you call your future, know this, all of the information I give has at some point, we have never given you this synopsis, for we are starting to summarize subjects for simplicity, for clarity, so that they begin to be less obtuse, so they become more present in your reality. Plain speaking and plain words are the call of the day. But we don't want to start yet. How many of you in here are aware of what is also in here? <laughs> Let the energy of this moment not be lost upon you, for this is real. What you hear here is not a human being pretending to channel. Let those in this place who are astute and who sense the energy of spirit look upon him now. 
and see the colors that would betray the fact that this is actually happening. Feel the energy of spirit as it comes to you in a way that only spirit can to prove to you that this is real. Feel those you've loved and lost in the room now. And this will show you that what is happening at this moment is as it seems. This is the gift. From our standpoint, the gift is that you would sit and let us wash your feet. And while my partner gives you information, the third language will be present in all the hearts here. And some of those who are listening will be touched as well. For we know who you are as your ears hear these words. For we see you there as well. Let the information given today be passed to many. This information we are going to call the lineage of DNA. From the start of DNA to today. The way it occurred on the planet, the way it works, and all of the things that you need to know around it to get you to the place where you can use it. And we must start where my partner started even today in his lecture series. For much of this is as he mentioned. But for those who are not here, we start at the beginning. We start with history. Question has been asked, Cryon, why is it you speak of DNA? It is a biological attribute of the human body. It is the, is the blueprint for the human genome. It writes all of the genes, over 30,000 of them. Why would you speak of this? You don't speak of molecular substances. You don't speak of chemistry. Why would you speak of DNA? Instead, speak to us about spiritual things. It has been said. The criticism has been put forward. The disappointment is registered. And there are those who don't understand why we speak of DNA. So let me tell you, dear one, if you were one of those, it is time to reveal your DNA is that which is the core element of who you are. If you had to pick a place where the higher self is, it's in your DNA. The Akashic record, the blueprint of everything you ever were is there. All of the lifetimes, all of your spiritual growth, all of your talents are there. The karma that you came in with and that many of you have dismissed, the record of that is there. Some of you understand this to the degree that you know you were a Lemurian. And if you were, and if you feel this way, you know of the incredible profundity of what's inside. That is the reason we speak of these things. 
And it's only been in the last few years that science has given you the proof of what we are going to speak of now. We have alluded to this in the past. I will just say it straight out. Your DNA is over three billion chemicals strong. Each piece of DNA, which is a loop, has over three billion chemicals in it. A molecule so small that you need an electron microscope to see it has three billion parts. The Human Genome Project has revealed, however, that these parts are a mystery. And that only 3% do anything. And those 3% of protein encoded portion of the DNA chemistry produce over 30,000 human genes. It is the blueprint that you were looking for, but only 3% did anything. Over 90%, therefore, and the mystery continues for there is no symmetry within the 90% of the chemistry. You can see no codes. It seems a random event has occurred and some have called it junk. Some chemists are convinced that DNA is left over from the evolutionary process and is no longer used by the human being because there is no pattern. There is no code. It does nothing. The rest of you know better. Revolution and Mother Nature and Gaia all together are very efficient when it comes to human biology and to life in general, whether it's photosynthesis all the way to the human genome. They throw away things that are not used. It is not junk. I will tell you what it is. And in the revelation, yet again, I want you to ponder what it could mean. And that is this 90% of your DNA is literally the quantum blueprint of your divinity. It is the quantum blueprint of your Akash. It is the record of all lifetimes, all things accomplished, all growth, all epiphany, all... You're a goal-achieving goal-getter. You made your schedule. You called the shots. You You've got this, Bree. And nothing can stop. All failure. For those of you who call yourselves Laborians, it represents a vast amount of experience on the planet. Vast. All the way from the beginning, which we are going to speak of. Therefore, it is important that we speak of DNA. When 90% of it is literally the pattern which drives the 3%, think of it this way. 3% of DNA is the engine of the vehicle you ride in. 90% are the instructions for the engine. <laughs> and in that 90%, dear ones, I would like to tell you is human consciousness. And in human consciousness, there is your ability to talk to it, to control it, to work with it. 
One of the first things we ever told you is that humans are in charge of humans. They're in charge of the earth. Consciousness moves the earth. Consciousness is what is responsible for the vibration of the planet. And you have always, through human consciousness, been able to speak to your own DNA through the 90% which is quantum. Human thought is quantum. So there is the workings of it spoken in a clear fashion. And it's only because of the development of the human genome and the revelation of the 90% that seems to do nothing that we can speak now of what it really does. And it's going to make sense to science at some point in time. When they take a look at that 90% and they don't see it as coding, but they see it as engrams, as ways of sending modifiers to the 3%, which is the engine. There's a problem, however. <laughs> it doesn't work well. Your cellular structure is weak. It does not represent what was given to you. Your immune system is horrible. Almost every disease on the planet goes right around it. Did you notice? You can't even stop a common cold. Ninety percent of your DNA developed into a way to give instructions to the three percent, and yet the three percent can't do its job. And there's a problem here, you might say, and there is. For the ninety percent of your DNA that's supposed to be quantum is only at a thirty percent efficacy rate. That is to say, it's only thirty percent efficient. And we gave you that information sometime. I'll give you the things we said then, just briefly, I'll say this, how does it make you feel to know that you could have cancer in your system and your body will never tell you. You've got to go to another human and have a test to find out what your body is doing. What kind of a system is that? The self-diagnostics that have been built into the human being doesn't work. When a nerve is severed in your, in your spinal cord, there's a chemistry that races to that area and keeps them from growing back together. Did you know that? Just the opposite of what you want. Starfish can grow back an arm, you can't. How does that feel being the top of the evolutionary ladder? because there is a DNA that is not functioning as it should. If you ever wondered about that, this is the path. It does not function as it should. Let me take you back to the beginning. And here it is laid out so that anyone can see it and hear it and all of the attributes of it. You need to hear it 100,000 years ago. There were up to 17 kinds of human beings in development, just like the variety of nature would call for regarding some of the other mammals. 
Just like there are hundreds of kinds of monkeys. Just like there's a tremendous variety in so many mammals. Animals. But not in the human being. But there was then. Go back with me. A hundred thousand years. You'll see that documented. And then it happened. And some of you hearing this are not going to like this. This was the lecture of today. I give it to you again for not all of you were here. Listen. A beautiful thing happened. Something happened by design. You were waiting for it when you were creating the planet, dear ones. When you were with me watching it cool down, you knew this would happen. in the Milky Way you have what you have called the seven sisters seven stars one of whom has a planetary arrangement around it and you have called this arrangement and those coming from it the Pleiadians and these are the ones who visited earth 100,000 years and years ago and it didn't take them very long to get here and the reason it did not is because this is a race that is quantum. That is to say, there is no time, there is no space, there is no distance. They willed themselves here and they appeared. It is an advanced race that is spiritual. It is graduate in nature. It is mature. It is beautiful. All of these things on purpose and those who came changed the DNA of one kind of human being of the 17. They stayed for as long as it took. You should know that this took over 1,000 years. Slowly, all of the other kinds of human beings dropped away. Only one was left. The kind that was changed, the DNA was being altered. And this is altered. And this is the creation story given to you on purpose in a beautiful way by spirit. It was an anointed time. And I would like to tell you, souls who are here long before Lemuria, when you looked upon this and you saw it and you knew it was good. The Pleiadian brothers and sisters look like you. <laughs> They do not have lizard skins. They do not have strange arms and legs. They're a bit taller. But they look like you. And there'll come a day when it's proper and correct and appropriate when they show themselves, not in your lifetime. But when they do, they're going to look just like you. And you will know that what I say here is accurate and true, for they are watching as I give this message. They are smiling with the appropriateness of this message. Listen to me, there is no conspiracy here. No one did anything to earth, to humanity. There is no control issue here. By design, on purpose, Spirit allowed them by invitation for this purpose. The only planet of free choice moved from the Pleiadians to this solar system. And Earth, literally, spiritually, was born.
It's controversial. And those listening now don't have to believe this. It is not critical to having your light shine on earth for this to be understood, but it is the truth. And if you wish to know where the seed biology came from, from I just gave you that. But there are still those who wish to go with the mythology that God came and all at once presented a system to the planet. They would rather go with that. As my partner says, they like the talking snake story. <laughs> That's not how it worked. Slowly, the first civilization on the planet was born. And it was called Lemuria. And it was not an advanced civilization in the way you think advanced. But they had something you should know about. Their DNA was at 90%, <laughs> not 30 all the quantumness of their DNA was activated for that is what the Pleiadians passed to them. The oldest civilization on the planet, the one that was the most long lasting that never had a war, was Lemuria. Broken up only because the oceans of the sea rose. They became seafaring as they had to be and always were. And moved to the edges of the Pacific Rim. They were the original society on the planet. They were the, the beginning. On the top of the mountain, of the biggest island of Hawaii, is where the canoes are buried. And they will tell you that in the lineage of Hawaii. The Pleiadians came there. That's where they landed first. That's where they began their work. Lemuria celebrated that. For they knew in their DNA all about the solar system. Did you understand that a quantum DNA working at 90% creates a consciousness that is one with the universe? The most ancient of spiritual beliefs on the planet asks you to be one with everything. It's not an accident. I'll get to that in a moment. Remnants of Lemuria are gone, covered by water a long time ago. You're not going to have proof of this, not physically, only if you go there and you ask what is happening and the ancestors will come to you and answer and say, welcome home. It is controversial. It is not understood, it is not seen, history does not report it. Lemuria existed. Do not place so much, much later, and there were three of them. Which one do you want to talk about? They did not play near the role that there are those in metaphysics wish to assign upon it. Oh, it was important. 
One of them was so recent off the Greek Isles. It's even reported within the, the history that you see. Humans have a dramatic interest in civilizations that get destroyed. <laughs> Prompted you to look there, to consider it perhaps one of the first, one of the most advanced. It wasn't, and it wasn't. Lemuria was. Cast your eyes upon that if you want to see. It was not an advanced society. It had no technology, te technical abilities at all. It, it knew how to heal with magnetics. It was in their DNA. You see, quantum DNA produces information being one with the universe. They knew all about DNA, doesn't everyone? That's what a quantum DNA does. Right from the Pleiadians. The Lemurians knew much. They knew all about the solar system. They knew about the galaxy in general. They looked at the stars and understood what was there. Now, long after the Lemurians were gone, thousands of years, the ancients still had it. What you call today the beginning of civilization, which you don't even give credibility to, is 30,000 years, 40,000 years, maybe not even 10. That'll change. You lose as the ancients, and I tell you, they knew about the stars. They knew about the galactic alignment coming. They knew about what is here. They knew about all of these things. This galactic alignment, which we say here is coming, we teach, has already begun. In New Mexico, the storytelling power of murals allows artists to engage it. Do the math, and you will find that you are sitting in the energy of this galactic alignment. A 26,000 year cycle that the ancients knew about. They still had DNA that was working in a quantum way. Without telescopes or computers, they knew. They knew about the solar system and all of these things. And so I ask you now, what happens? And so we reveal that, that you slid backwards. And you know you did. For free choice is honored. The splitting of Lemuria and the fragmenting of human society creates many ways that you might have said opportunities of losing what was a collective consciousness. And you did. And in this process, the DNA that used to be at a 90% level was reduced slowly back to 30 it's what you have today. And literally you started over. You did not have that quantum feeling, that knowledge, that intuition. You didn't know where your, your, your seeds came from. The Pleiadian experience was gone, was lost. Humans didn't understand astronomy. Humans didn't even think the earth was round, think the earth was round. It went away. Almost like a reboot, a start over for all of you. 
and you pulled yourself up to where you are today and I'm going to tell you what is different today and with this we almost are done the lineage of DNA goes from a precious creation that was appropriate and accurate and true and not conspiratorial no matter what any will tell you on purpose anointed and sacred to a place today where it is beginning to be seen that way <laughs> and in that the activation of your DNA is that which means you are beginning to increase it in a quantum fashion there will be pieces and parts of the quantumness with the quantumness which can be activated before the other you sit in a shift you sit in a an age you call new age and it isn't it is a remembrance of the ancients it is a return to a Lemurian state and it's about time this is what you call the new energy the shift is upon you and you begin to work with the DNA like the Lemurians did Oh, human being, listen to me. This is the crux of why you're here. It is what we teach in this day. That the DNA, that quantum sacred part of you, is laying there ready to be enhanced with intent. And all that I brought in magnetic service to you was to serve magnetic service to you was to service this planet in a way that the magnetics could then talk to your DNA and return you to a state at which you deserve the Mayan spoke of it this is the highest vibration that Gaia has ever seen you sit in the ramp up of it bring human consciousness to match that vibration and your DNA will start to to increase in its efficiency you're going to start to see it in many ways and we've spoken of this as well go see these channelings where we told you there are some signs coming to show you that humans are evolving and that involvement process, starting with the indigo children, is about how much of the quantum DNA they are using. And the more you use, the less linear you're going to become. The more conceptual you will be. This is what you're doing. Here's something we've not spoken of before. The Lemurians lived a very long time. <laughs> Self-diagnostics in the DNA created a human cellular structure which actually repaired itself. There is no other disease I can think of where people just expect you to fix. I'll tell you something that you would never ever have expected. The Lemurian could grow back a limb. And I'm telling you, there'll come a time when you can too. And it won't be through modern medicine. It's going to be through thought, activation, consciousness. Know this, that you bring slowly, 
It was designed for today. It is time for you to return to the quantum state, which is the spiritual state, and it starts now. You fight a battle on the earth between old and new energy, and the new energy is winning. Make no mistake that the old energy will be with you for some time. And it's going to create issues with you. As you clean up your economy, and you're not done, you will see the ways of a new paradigm of being, of structuring. And it's going to take some time. Do not fear what it will do. For it will emerge just like you knew it would emerge. One of the strongest on earth. Filled with integrity. A new paradigm that makes sense for a new age. Count on that. All part of a human evolvement in consciousness that you can see in your DNA. Crying is is the scientist going to be able to put this under a microscope and see it? No, because the microscope is 3D. So I say to the scientist this, what I've said before, when you develop the quantum lens, you will see it. For you will actually see the chemistry in the 90% of DNA will glow under the influence of the quantumness. And you will know I'm right. And it will change colors with the activation. And you will be able to see it. But at the moment, you have no quantum lens. There is not any device, not any device for measuring the quantumness of the universe that exists on the planet. But you're getting close. When you do, the revelation will be in your biology. These are the things we wish to bring you today. These are the things of the teaching. And all through that, we've been hugging you. Why do we bring these things to you to tell you, dear human being, that you have come full circle? You wouldn't have missed this. Dear human being, for those who listen to me, I know you. There will be a certain percentage of those in these next years who will come see me. There will be a transition, a life transition. And when that occurs, know in all appropriateness how beautiful it is. Old soul, it's something you've done so many times you can't even count. And you will come back and you will come back because you're not going to miss this. This is the shift you've asked for, you've waited for, and you're going to be born with a higher level of DNA efficacy than you're left with. Watch these children develop even into a more frustrating group than they are now. And some of them will be you when you return. I wouldn't say these things unless they were accurate and true. See the clarity of the channel today. Feel in your own innate sense the truth of it all. And be aware that you are dearly loved. It is the reason 
we are here. We collect the bowls metaphorically of of the tears. We shed as we wash your feet. We invite you to carry on this energy of spirit. Let it sit with you for a moment before you rise and leave. Let it be known that this day, spirit really was here to meet the brother and the sister, to wash your feet with our tears and to love you like we are. And so it is. We are all servants of peace. And uh, may peace prevail on this sweet earth and inside all of us. Calling in that full moon, everyone, and all its uh, magnificence, along with the eclipse and Wiesach and um, Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> I'm calling in the spring, everyone, and. Mother, may we continue to prevail with peace on this earth until it's the nature of all around us. And greetings, Mother. Mother. Yes. At Buddha's birthday. That Buddha's uh, Buddha's uh, enlightened state. Yes. Yes. Lots of cosmic energy happening. In a good way. Things are moving very quickly now to completion 
as you can see, you keep bringing these words up, wrap up the story. It is in of itself the energies are tying up all the loose ends. Hmm. Just like what the man just said. We're here. Gotta squint a little bit to see us. Yet we're here mm. as things get lighter. We let's say come into full focus because the dimensions are shifting so rapidly right now. One day to the next, the energies are such that you might have driven into a portal yesterday. Today, you're in a place called nowhere. Nowhere is everywhere. It is the sound of oneness. What's happening on many levels is this Buddhic energy from the Buddhic plane pouring in at this time with the Admiral Sananda Kumara's energy. Lord Maitreya, all the aspects of what this story is about, the office of the Christ, a planetary position, a universal position in this local universe of Nebadon. Hmm. The real politics is how this galaxy, this universe revolves and it is with precise alignments of love, compassion, gratitude, oneness. Hmm. Luminous beings, we all are, as Master Yoda has taught us. It is at this moment everything coming into crystal clear focus as the energies 
rise up. Ah. Yes, there are many events unfolding. Hmm. Our wayward children would like to crash your economy. And they're working at it yet. St. Germain knows what to do. And it's right at this time. As all these aspects. You heard the Lady Master speaking about the... Hmm, Tremendous shifts in energy. May 19. We cannot say what is unfolding. What it is about is lifting this realm up in such a way. We all get to meet and greet each other in oneness, beauty, love. As Aurora Ray keeps telling us each day about the magnificence of who and what we are becoming. It is all happening and unfolding. And we would like it to be yesterday. Yet. Today is this here now moment. This is the biggest challenge for ourselves to be here now, be love now. That is a really, really big deal. As we master this stuff, this oneness, it ripples out like the pebble in the pond or this eclipse that is rippling out across the galaxy. And believe you me, it's shifting every particle up, which yeah. is a good thing. Yeah. Our beloved children are doing what they're doing. And accountability is on the table. What happened long ago, not so long, long ago, in a galaxy not so far, far away, this 
great shift that has to do with what happened 13,000 years ago, 12,000, give or take. It's happening right now. Climate disruption, consciousness raising, and the conflict. And we'll say we're here too with the Nibiru. The Nibiru was here. 13,000 years ago as well. We come only in peace. This is the order of the day. We all are needing a upgrade, so to speak, along with the planet. Like we have said, 30 days, give or take, we can fix this story. It is about this transfiguration of dimensional energies, the crystal kingdom is part of it. What is contained within these crystals that we have all throughout our lives, through our homes, that are still part of Baya, Baywamas, Gaia. It is the central nervous system of this planet brain talk to your crystals they talk to you <laughs> they can change your DNA they can reform it reshape it so that death is an illusion The things Cryon brought up about Lemuria, it was only towards the end of what was happening that the issues of conflict got in the mix. And it was about spirit versus technology. Mm-hmm. We're here again. <laughs> AI. This is not the enemy. There is no enemy. It is what we can do with our thoughts. This is why all the the 
the wisdom teachers, wisdom keepers across this planet and throughout the local systems. Gotta keep it pure. Watch your tongue. Watch your thoughts. This is how we change this. The mantras these folks are doing in the Wisak Valley for the next three days are going to do some good stuff. It's to lift this planet and us up. We're doing a good share of that ourselves as things get brighter. It is this light that's pouring in. We have no words for it. The words we could speak, A-E-I, Oh, ooh. the holy sacred sounds of the vowels, creation sounds. It is a glorious time to be alive. At the same moment, same breath, it is a trip, as the Grateful Dead would say. Long, strange trip it's been. It's a good one. The outcome is Nirvana Satori. Words. It is the word magic we create within ourselves. We know the sacred sounds, the words. It's how we lift it up. We must be on our ways. Got an interview. <coughs> In the gamma quadrant of oh. this local galaxy. You got an interview? Yes. Who was interviewing you in the gamma quadrant of the Milky Way galaxy? Well, let's say a few dignitaries from a constellation that 
we not sure how to pronounce it in your language called English. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, you don't know. I don't, Mother. All we could say is this constellation looks like a swan. Oh. Yes. The ugly goth duckling is becoming a beautiful swan. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Got light years to go, Lady Master. Greetings. Oh. Well, Jeez. thank you, Mother. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Take these energies and lift all of life up. <clears throat> yeah, I might as well go up. <laughs> it's a better choice than going down. That's about it. <laughs> In the light of the most radiant one, Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sabayo, Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sabayo, Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sabayo, India, Eliyahu, Yod Hey, Old Hey, Namaste, Adonai, Vasu, Varagas. Moment tea to everybody, mothers. Coming back. I mean, mother's taking her leave and Rama's coming back. I hope. Hello. <laughs> Greetings, Rama. Where did you go? Hmm. <sighs> Hmm. Where did you go? Taos Mountain. Ah. <clears throat> Are you hearing that hum up there? Yep, it is uh, that steady beat of the energies. Non-stop. Just keeps on going. It does. It's about that, keeping everything running within normal parameters. Oh, um, you got 
the um, democracy now on the computer, right? On oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's easier to hear. Mm, let me find that. <laughs> so, what were you saying? Can you do two things at once? You're talking about Taos Mountain. Oh, just the energies with this eclipse are really um, pushing it right to the edge. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, April 26th. Wednesday. We're going to play um, Amy's uh, Democracy Now! from uh, a week ago Wednesday on April 26th. It was the day after Harry Belafonte went over the rainbow. And Amy had a really great show with the numbers of interviews she had with him over many years of time. There you go. You got it. Mm. All right. Let's do this, everyone. Let's do this. Colin Harry, 64. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, we spend the hour remembering the remarkable life of Harry Belafonte. The pioneering actor, singer, civil rights activist died at his home on Tuesday in New York at the age of 96 from congestive heart failure. The son of Jamaican immigrants, Belafonte grew up in Harlem and Jamaica. In the 1950s, he spearheaded the Calypso craze, became the first artist in recording history with a million-selling album. He was also the first African-American actor to win an Emmy. Along with his rise to worldwide stardom, Belafonte became deeply involved in the civil rights movement. One of Dr. Martin Luther King's closest confidants, he sent money to bail King out of the Birmingham city jail and raised thousands of dollars to release other imprisoned protesters. He financed the freedom ride, supported voter registration drives, and helped to organize the March on Washington in 1963. Harry Belafonte remained deeply involved in political struggles at home and abroad. A longtime critic of U.S. foreign policy called for an end to the embargo against Cuba, opposed policies of war and global oppression. After years of supporting the anti-apartheid movement, Belafonte hosted former South African President Nelson Mandela on his triumphant visit to the United States after his release from prison in South Africa. Harry Belafonte also spoke out against the U.S. invasion of Iraq and once called President George W. Bush the, quote, greatest terrorist in the world. Harry Belafonte appeared on Democracy Now! numerous times. In 2011, I spoke to him at the Sundance Film Festival, where a documentary about his life titled Sing Your Song premiered. The film was co-produced by Harry Belafonte's daughter, Gina. This is a part of the film's trailer. Here's one of the greatest artists of the world, Harry Belafonte. 
One day, Paul Robeson came to see me and simply said, get them to sing your song and they'll want to know who you are. Even in that grainy black and white early TV, his personality came out. When Harry Balfani went on the show with Petula Clark, they touched. People were like, oh my God. Whatever you're capable of doing as artists to help propagandize the civil rights revolution. Out of that came the true artistry of Harry Belafonte. There's a lot of people out here who are really pissed off. Harry gave us a piece of his fire. It gave us all strength. We are angry. We're upset. Harry motivated Martin because here's a man who didn't have to get involved and who did. We look around for some comfort and we don't find any. I remember once when you said, from the time I get up, the time I go to sleep, I seek out the injustices done to humankind. like that. It was always, let's do something. Harry did this over and over and over and over again. He took all our struggles and made them his own. The trailer for the documentary Sing Your Song about the life of Harry Belafonte, who's died at the age of 96. The film premiered at the 2011 Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah, where I interviewed Harry. I asked him to talk about his first memories of being politically active. I'm not quite sure precisely when social and political, political activism became a visible brand of my DNA. But it seems to me that I was born into it. Uh, it is hard to be born into the, into the experience in the world of poverty and not develop some instinct for survival and resistance to those things that oppress you. My mother was a feisty lady, although she had never gotten into a place of formal education. She came here and had to learn skills. She became a seamstress. She became an expert cook. She worked at odds and ends and jobs. Uh, she never resisted the opportunity to fight oppression, especially segregation and uh, all the things that, that plagued people who were immigrants. In her resistance, she counseled us constantly. Now, professionally, you started more acting before you really started professionally singing. Is that right? Well, acting was 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 the complete uh, key. Was the was was the main key to my getting involved in this play that we did of uh, Steinbeck's of Mice and Men. The director had created a character in the play who would become the balladeer. He would be a force. The director moved throughout the play to in the changing of sets, changing of cues, lighting cues, changing of mood. And this character will emerge from the darkness of the, of the corners of the stage and sing the songs of the day for those migrant workers coming from uh, Southwest America. And most of the songs that I had to sing were the songs that had been written by uh, Hughie Ledbetter and by... Uh, 
Woody Guthrie. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, I opened the play with a Woody Guthrie song. Anyway, let me jump to the quick of this. It was approaching the material as an actor because the director spent a lot of time on what the balladeer would do, how he would be positioned and how he would be positioned, what the intensity of the moment of singing the song would mean to the development of the play of the scene. And in that context, I approached music as a tool that was really about social information. It wasn't just harmony and chords and notes and melody, all that was obvious, but it was the content and the power of song. And having been heard in that play, in that context, I was offered a job to uh, become a singer. And since I couldn't find other work, being a singer was a good challenge. So I put a repertoire together, walked into a nightclub called The Royal Roost, met guys like Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, and Max Roach. They were your backup band? My first backup band <laughs> were those guys. And it, it just launched me into a world from which I have never looked back. One of the incredible stories told in Sing Your Song is your traveling through the South and trying to sing your song. Uh, talk about that experience. Paul Rosen, who was a mentor, and a man for whom I had enormous love and admiration, was the supreme example for me of how to use your life with dignity and with courage, not bravado, but genuine social courage to put all that's on the line to come up against the forces of oppression who controlled so much of what you could or could not do as an artist and to defy that fact and go after the larger goal of uh, changing up the faces of oppression uh, inspired me. And he went everywhere there was the opportunity to be heard, whether it was going into Spain to sing during the great uh, Spanish Revolutionary War in the 30s, whether it was going to England. He went, he worked with the Welsh miners. As a matter of fact, his whole uh, engagement politically had been stimulated by what happened when he met the Welsh miners and he sang with them and he went into their world. But when I watched what he did and how many places he went for uh, inspiration, and mostly places where there was oppression, I felt those were the places in which I would be most nourished with what I should be doing with my own art, with my own platform. And certainly going into the south of the United States, listening to the voices of rural black America, listening to the voices of those who sang out against the Ku Klux Klan and out against segregation, and women who were the most oppressed of all, uh, coming, rising to the occasion to protest against their conditions became the arena in where my first songs were to emerge. And in that context, going in the South was for me uh, not to exploit commercially. That didn't come until later. And, uh, but to be, to find the resources to nourish my own creativity. So there you were the star on the stage, but you couldn't go in the front door. Describe that experience. When I went to the South uh, on a professional basis, I had already arrived at a place where there was some visibility. I was going with uh, artists who were quite well known, Marjan Gower Champion, a play called Three for the Night. We, in many of the places we booked throughout the universities of America, a lot of the places we went to the universities in the South, like Chapel Hill, 
and the University of Texas. And in going to those places, we thought they were going not so much for the commercial uh, 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 reward of it, that's how we made our living, but to get the young people and to get our, our works before them. And in the places that we went, some of the auditoriums were public institutions. And when I got to some of these places, not only did they not want to let me in the theater, they didn't want to let me in the places in which we were booked to stay overnight. There were many instances where, by law, no black person could stay in this hotel. Or by law, no black person could be sitting at a table with a white member of the cast, I mean white woman member of the cast, and uh, not be sitting in the threat of uh, incarceration and uh, the law coming down on you because these were the tenets of the law. This wasn't just something that was capricious, it was written. It was the legislation of the state and we had to come up against that. And the battle was, uh, was, was consistent. And even in the North, places like the Waldorf Astoria and the Palmer House in Chicago and these mighty institutions of culture that uh, had strict race laws and uh, in accepting employment to go in these places, uh, rigidly placed in my contract was the, was the requirement of those laws and those rules be suspended and not be evoked during the time of my appearance. Harry Belafonte, when did you first meet Dr. Martin Luther King? It was right after Birmingham, I'm sorry, Montgomery, right after the Birmingham, uh, the Montgomery bus boys caught had taken hold and the Montgomery Bus uh, Boycott Association, the Montgomery Improvement Association. And uh, we all heard about this young minister and certainly we all heard of Rosa Parks. And I got a call and uh, before the strike had been settled, they had not expected it to run so long. So this was in 1956? 1956. Dr. King called, and he was coming to New York to speak at the Abyssinia Baptist Church. There was, at that time, uh, the, the head pastor was Adam Clayton Powell, who was in our Congress, and he was going to give a lecture, lecture to people from the ecumenical community. And uh, he said, I'm coming to New York, and I'd love to have, have an opportunity to, to meet you. Uh, and I'd like to give you an idea of what it is that I do. And uh, I was absolutely fascinated that he called and I wanted very much to meet him. So I went up to the church to hear him speak. And at the end of his lecture, he would retire to the basement. And for what he said would just be a few minutes, almost at the end of four hours, we exchanged thoughts and feelings and passions. And at the end of that meeting, I knew that I would be in his service and focus on the cause of the desegregation movement, the right to vote, and all that he stood for. Uh, although we understood how perilous the journey would be, we were not quite prepared for all that we had to confront. And uh, I think it was the most important time in my life. I wanted to go to a clip from Sing Your Song of Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King, do you, do you fear for your life? I'm more concerned about doing 
doing a good job, doing something for humanity and what I consider the will of God than about longevity. Ultimately, it isn't so important how long you live. The important thing is how well you live. I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. Dr. Martin Luther King, and that clip is from the film about Harry Belafonte's life, about the history of the 20th century and coming into the 21st, called Sing Your Song. Harry, that relationship you had with Dr. King that um, went on for more than a decade until his assassination, how often did you speak? I would say easily we spoke every day. Obviously, we missed some days or some weekends, but the line was a was constantly filled with thoughts and ideas and, and challenge and uh, up-to-date uh, uh, decisions that were being made by a team of people who were always brought together when there was the moment uh, to escalate what we were doing or to be cautious about where we were going and also trying to broaden the base of our political relationships. Uh, so much of what our mission was doing was very dependent on our relationship with the federal government, with the institutions of, uh, of justice, because our, our plea was on a constitutional basis. The Constitution of the United States of America is being grossly violated by all the things that black people are experiencing. And if you don't have the instruments of government and the federal government on your side, including the courts, then you really can't do very much because all the laws that bound us to such cruel experience were state laws. And there was no way to appeal the injustice within the state structure. So we had to find ways in which to broaden our campaign to include a national movement and it becoming a national movement to entice federal intervention. Do you know how many of those hundreds of conversations were recorded by the FBI? I think my safest bet would be all of them. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know when it would have started, but- uh, Have you gotten transcripts yes, of those conversations? Yes, transcripts. I've gotten some stuff from the uh, Freedom of Information Act. What's uh, very important is the fact that 
in the first 10 years of pursuing to get those files, I have letters that come from both the CIA and the FBI assuring me with all honesty and without having done all due diligence and deep research, such documents don't exist. There are none. And uh, eventually we had other sources that came through other ways in which they began to look through files and saw my name and situations. Like Taylor Branch, the historian. Taylor Branch, the historian. He was most uh, uh, revealing in what he had done with the research, but also journalists and other people who were digging to get stories on other subjects came across those files and informed us. And then finally, the FBI capitulated and the first documents they sent about hundreds of pages, uh, 99% of those pages were just one big black stroke. So the, the, this, the, 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 the insult against intelligence to send those kinds of files to a citizen whose rights were being violated was an insult to not only intelligence, but a crushing of the rights to information and to living in a, in a society that is more open and transparent. Talk about the march from Selma to Montgomery and who you brought down and the fear at that time and how these artists were also a kind of protection the front lines, if you will, to protect the people who are at great risk, whose names were not famous. I think all the artists who did this understood that, understood that there was the threat to life and that some irrational person somewhere or some irrational group somewhere would find it very adventurous to mark them as one of the targets. There'd be a lot of heroism coming from the clan of these retarded people, emotionally and socially, to say they killed a celebrity, which in fact became in vogue not too shortly after this period. Look what they did to John Kennedy and to so many others, Dr. King and etc. But these artists understood that. It wasn't they were not blinded by it. They weren't blind to it, I should say. And by putting themselves on the line, it heightened public curiosity. And in heightening public curiosity, it meant that things were forced to be more transparent and they weren't quite ready to reveal themselves that way. I'm talking about the opposition. Except it's important to note that at the very night of our concert and the night thereafter was when Mrs. Luwutso was murdered. And as a matter of fact, in the car in which she had taken one of the members of our uh, group to the airport. She was on her way back. Tony Bennett gave up his seat in that ride. Tony Bennett was yeah. there, same. He was there, and he, we gave up his seat to someone else, to Mrs. Luizzo, and the young man that was with her. She was a white woman who was, wanted to support the struggle, the civil rights struggle, by driving people. Yes, she was a member of the Automobile Workers Union and she volunteered to come down and was one of the organizers. And she drove cars to give people facility back and forth to the different places in which artists had to reside. And in doing that service, on her way back from the airport, she fell a target to murderers who killed her. Uh, that was Tony Bennett's car. Uh, it was also important, I think, was the kind of artists that came down 
didn't have a platform in which they were to be very visible. Singers could always be heard. But uh, uh, Leonard Bernstein came down. And when he and I spoke, Leonard said, I don't sing. There'll be no orchestra to conduct. But morally, I feel an obligation to let my presence be seen and to let people draw whatever strength from that they might be able to garnish to know that their struggle is has touched all of us. So there are many who people don't even know about. You also helped fund Freedom Summer. Yes. Talk about that, putting your finances behind the struggle. I mean, you now, what, in 55 or before, had the first gold record clip, so gold million-selling record. First one in this country. Some had singles, but you had the record. Yeah, it was the first album to, to achieve the sales of a million. And uh, beyond all of the hoopla that came with that fact from the commercial end, the, stu- the, the, uh, the studio and the, the record company, what was very prophetic about that moment for me was that it became symbolic of an instruction that Paul Robeson had given me. And he said, get them to sing your song and they'll want to know who you are. And in that little exchange down in the dressing room at the Village Vanguard, I woke up not too long after that wonderful piece of counsel to understand what he meant because that song, that, that album housed the song Banana Boat Dale, and uh, the whole world was singing the song in the literal sense. But also, when I looked at the thousands of people that came to the stadiums to hear that song and others, I realized that the world was singing my song. And in Robeson's counsel, this was the opportunity to begin to spread truth and to open up opportunities for information to flow. It was the opportunity to reach out to other artists who may not have been heard otherwise or needed to be heard like Miriam McCabe. America knew nothing about the struggles of the people in Africa. Miriam McCabe came, she got the platform. Ed Sullivan was convinced in his world to let Miriam McCabe come on the program and to sing in, in, in Kosa. And for him, it was an adventure. And he'd been told by the programmers that they're not going to understand. He said, oh, they'll understand. Harry likes it. It's good enough for me. And we got on the air and there was Mary McCabe singing these songs. And her popularity became quite intense. Which was in- very important for the anti-apartheid struggle Absolutely. spreading into the United States. Absolutely. The anti-apartheid struggle spread in the United States but for a greater understanding of the liberation of the whole continent. There was uh, people like Sekature and Nereri and uh, 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 Tom and Boyer and all of the, 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 the entire continent, continent was awakened with the idea of uh, liberation and having African artists, eventually Hugh and Masekela and others. Uh, the whole idea of world of music was seeded in the fact that the Banana Boat songs from the Caribbean opened up more music from Cuba and the whole power in Afro-Cuban jazz and what those great Cuban artists did who, who, who pollinated American jazz with such great harmonies and song. All that stuff was a melting pot for a greater truth. 
Harry Belafonte speaking in 2011 on Democracy Now. He died Tuesday of congestive heart failure at the age of 96 here in New York. To see the rest of that interview and all of our interviews with Harry, go to democracynow.org. We'll hear more from Harry Belafonte in his own words when we come back. he made with the South African singer, Mary Makeba. Okay, I think we got the rest on our TV here. I think okay. I caught it, Rama. Okay. So, well, he didn't realize it was just that one part, but we got the next part. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Show Me the Way, My Brother by Harry Belafonte from the Grammy-winning album he made with the South African singer, Marianne Makeba. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman as we continue our coverage of the life and legacy of Harry Belafonte. He died Tuesday at the age of 96 here in New York of congestive heart failure. In 2003, on February 15th, he spoke before hundreds of thousands of people in New York City. It was a freezing cold day. It was a massive rally calling on the United States and President Bush not to invade Iraq. Today is a start a day in the name of America. The world has sat by with tremendous anxiety and the great fear that we did not exist. They have been told and they have thought that what our country, its press, and the leaders in the administration have said, we today invalidate all that. We stand for peace. We stand for the truth of what is at the heart of the American people. This is not the first time that we as a people have been misled by the leadership. We were misled by those who created the falseness of the Bay of Tonkin, which falsely led us into a war 
Vietnam. A war that we could not and did not win. We lied to the American people about Grenada and what was going on in that tiny island. We lied to the American people about Nicaragua, El Salvador, Cuba, and many places in the world. And we stand here today to let those people and others know that America is a vast and diverse country. And we are part of the greater truth of what makes our nation. Dr. King once said that if there is, if mankind does not put an end to war, war will put an end to mankind. On that day, February 15, 2003, Harry Belafonte also spoke to Democracy Now! during our live broadcast right behind the stage of the global anti-war protests. Harry detailed his criticism of George W. Bush's Secretary of State Colin Powell for his role for pushing for the invasion of Iraq. My comments about General, General Colin Powell is really not a personal uh, confrontation. Black Americans and many peoples of color have always taken great pride in what those of us who come from the history of oppression have achieved. And when an individual breaks through and becomes and comes into the place where decisions are made that can make a difference, we then have high expectations. Once that is rejected by those who acquire this position, we may sit in quiet disappointment. And when the person who achieves that distinction then puts him or herself in the service of our oppression and those who create new ways in which to oppress us, that is morally unacceptable. And that is my argument with General Colin Down and Condoleezza Rice. I expect, as do others, that their history should have prepared them for a much better articulation about how to treat people globally. Most of the things, most of the people in the world who suffer from tyranny, most of the people in the world who suffer from the tyranny of oppression, the tyranny of hunger, the tyranny of ignorance, the tyranny of HIV/AIDS, they sit terror. And we look very carefully at what it is that has caused this constant oppression. You will see that somewhere in there, America plays the game. And this gathering here today helps us understand that there is another America that is strong and is resolute. And amid it, millions and millions of people, as a matter of fact, we do make the majority voice in this nation. And that we let the world know that we are in solidarity with those who seek to have other ways than war to settle our grievances. In 2006, Harry Belafonte traveled to Venezuela, where he met with President Hugo Chavez. Belafonte's trip made international headlines when he described President George W. Bush as the world's greatest terrorist. Or the greatest tyrant in the world, the greatest terrorist in the world, as George W. Bush says. And I to tell you, not hundreds, not thousands, but millions of the American people, millions, support your revolution, support your ideas, and we are expressing our solidarity with you. President Chavez was standing right next to Harry Belafonte. Shortly after Harry returned from Venezuela, he came into our firehouse studio to talk about why he called President George W. Bush a terrorist. When 
Katrina took place, there was a great sense of tragic loss for many Americans who saw that terrible tragedy. What we had not anticipated was that our government would have been so negative and so unresponsive to the plight of hundreds of thousands of people in the region. And in a dilemma that we all face as to what we could do as private citizens to help the folks that were caught in that tragedy, we began to listen to voices that were outside the the boundaries of government, the United States government. We listened to voices that came from far away as Denmark, who offered to send the goods and services uh, in emergency. And we also heard the voices of people from Venezuela, from their leader, Hugo Chavez, who said that in this moment of your great tragedy, we, the Venezuelan people, extend all the resources we can summon up to help the plight of those people caught in the Gulf region. The United States very abruptly and very arrogantly rejected that offer. While in, while in its stead, we did nothing to bring immediate relief. And as a matter of fact, I would say, we're still, we're still quite delinquent in what the peoples of that region need because we still failed to fully mobilize and meet the needs of the people, particularly in New Orleans or other places within that region. I and the many other private citizens decided that we would listen very carefully to what people outside of the government were saying because there was no immediate sense of relief in response to what we were experiencing, the people in Katrina. And so, like others, I went with a delegation of 15 people at the invitation of the Venezuelan government to come and to meet with uh, President Chavez and members of his cabinet to talk about uh, uh, what we could do to help American people caught in this tragedy. And it is quite curious that we can find billions and billions of dollars to sustain an illegal and immoral war in the Middle East, invading a country that did not provoke us and moving into this, uh, uh, into this conflict unconstitutionally, even though it had the approval of the Congress, it's the, even the Congress violated the statutes of the Constitution. We were not invaded. There was no threat of an enemy. We unilaterally walked into a country that had no threat to this country, and we invaded it. That's against the Constitution. Do you call President Bush a terrorist? I call President Bush a terrorist. I call those around him terrorists as well. Condoleezza Rice, Rumsfeld, uh, uh, Gonzalez in the, uh, the Justice Department, and certainly uh, uh, Cheney. I think all of these men and women sit in the midst of an enormous conspiracy that has been unraveling America for the last eight years, or six years. Uh, it is tragic that uh, the dubious way in which this president acquired power should have begun to unravel the Constitution and the peoples of this country. Yes, I say that there are people in this country who live in terror. Poverty is terror. Having your essential security threatened is terror. Having your livelihood as an elderly person uh, slowly disappearing with no uh, replenishment is terror. Students who are dropping out of school because there are no resources to keep us in school is terror. Uh, you find people in the streets watching drugs permeate our communities and destroy our young. It's, 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 it's a life of terror. And men who sit in charge of that distribution mechanism which can help the American people overcome these problems and refuse to do so while giving the rich more money than they've ever dreamt of having, while uh, turning 
around our institutions and redirecting resources from those who are truly in need to those who are already uh, uh, generously endowed, if not hedonistically so. Uh, uh, it, it's a great tragedy. That was Harry Belafonte on Democracy Now! on January 30th, 2006. After that interview, we learned Coretta Scott King had died. A dear friend of Coretta Scott King, Harry Belafonte, was invited to speak at her funeral. But the invitation to speak was rescinded after George W. Bush announced he was attending Coretta Scott King's funeral. Harry Belafonte last appeared on Democracy Now! in 2016 at a special event at the historic Riverside Church in New York to celebrate Democracy Now!'s 20th anniversary. He co-headlined the event with Noam Chomsky. It was the first time they'd done a public event together. Harry Belafonte spoke about Donald Trump, who'd just been elected president. I believe that Trump and energy to the realization of the, uh, the vastness of uh, the reach of the Ku Klux Klan is uh, not something that has been out of the, our basic purview of thought. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan for some of us is a constant, uh, it has a constant existence. It isn't until it touches certain aspects of white America that white America all of a sudden wakes up to the fact that uh, there's something called the Klan and it does its mischief. What causes me to have great thought is something that's most unique to my experience. And as I said earlier tonight, uh, at the doorstep of being 90 years of age, I thought I'd seen it all and done it all, only to find out that at 89 I knew nothing. But the most peculiar thing to me has been the absence of the black presence in the middle of this resistance, not just skirmishes that we've seen in Ferguson and uh, Black Lives Matter and I think those protests and those voices being raised are extremely important but we blew this thing a long time ago when they started the purge against communism in this country and against the voice of those who saw hope in a a design for socialist theory and for the sharing of wealth and for the equality of humankind. Uh, When we abandoned our our vision and vigils on that topic, I think we sold out ourselves. young black students in Harlem just a few days ago asked me what at this point in my life was I looking for and I said uh, what I've always been looking for where resides 
the rebel heart. Without the rebellious heart, it's about people who understand that uh, there's no sacrifice you can make that is too great to retrieve that which you've lost. We will forever be distracted with possessions and trinkets and title. And I think one of the big things that happened was that when black people began to be anointed by the trinkets of this capitalist society and uh, began to become big time players and began to become heads of corporations, they became players in the game of our own demise. I think people have to be more adventurous. The heart has to find greater space for rebellion. Uh, so. for such thought because I was just recently reminded of Shorna Goodman and Cheney they sit particularly close to my own feelings and thoughts because I was one of the voices that was raised in recruiting those young students to participate in our rebellion David Goodman, Andrew's brother is here today I'm sure that He's always at the right places. But uh, I think that there are those kinds of extremes that will be experienced in the struggle, but the real mobility of our existence is are we prepared to pay that price? And I think once the opposition understands that uh, we are quite prepared to die for what we believe in. That death for a cause does not just sit with ISIS, but sits with people, uh, workers, people who are generally prepared to push against uh, the theft of our nation and the distortion of our constitution and that for many of us no price is too great for that charge. I've been through much in this country. I came back from the Second World War and while the world rejoiced in the fact that Hitler had been met and defeated, uh, there were some of us who were touched by the fact that instead of sitting at the table and feast at that great victory, we were worried about our lives because the response from many in America was the murder of many black servicemen that came back and we were considered to be dangerous because we had learned uh, the capacity to handle weaponry, we had faced death in the battlefield, and when we came back, we had an expectation as the victors. We came back knowing that, yes, uh, we might have fought to end Hitler, but we also fought for our right to vote in America. And that in 
in the pursuit of such rights uh, came the civil rights movement. Well, that can happen again. We just have to get out our old coats, dust them off, stop screwing around, and just chasing the good times and get down to business. There's some ass kicking out here to be done, and we should do it. Belafonte speaking in 2016 at the historic Riverside Church in New York to celebrate Democracy Now!'s 20th anniversary. He co-headlined the event with Noam Chomsky. Harry died on Tuesday at the age of 96 of congestive heart failure at his home here in New York City. You can visit democracynow.org to see the full event as well as all of our interviews with Harry Belafonte. Um, Harry uh, giving his speech in 2003 against the war in Iraq, Harry in Venezuela, Harry uh, at the Sundance Film Festival when uh, the documentary about him premiered, talking fully about his life, and so much more. That does it for our show. On Saturday, Juan Gonzalez will deliver the opening plenary address at a day-long policy forum at American University titled In Search of a New U.S. Policy for a New Latin America, burying 200 years of the Monroe Doctrine. Visit democracynow.org for more information. Oh, and special thanks to our archivist Brendan Allen and Sharina Nadura uh, for today's show. Democracy Now! produced with an AFL smart you guys are Messiah Rhodes, Gary Shane, Mary Tara Singh, Terry Warner, Trinidad, Dura, Sam Alcock, Tim Marie Astudio, John Hamilton, Rabbi Karen, Honey Masood, Chanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman. This is Democracy Now! Oh my gosh. Mm. Oh. Thank you, everybody, for sharing all of this. Um, They'll live on through us, that's for sure. All right, we're going to switch gears a bit. We're going to have a little listen to Professor Richard Wolf. Right, Drama? Yeah. What we put people, when we put people first in U.S. politics. Here we go. Where's the sound? It's coming in this weird player that popped up. Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. In today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about those banking and railroad disasters that are in the recent history of our country. We're going to talk about layoffs in the high-tech industry. We're going to talk about food insecurity, the latest euphemism for hunger in America. (laughs) And then in the second half, I'm going to try to explain how American history 
gives us reason to believe in the possibility and indeed in the likelihood of a political and economic surge to the left here in the United States and what lessons from the past surges we need to have in our minds as the next one emerges. So let's jump right in. I won't need to go over what has happened. We had a catastrophe of rail derailment uh, in East Palestine, Ohio. You all know about that. It got a good bit of attention. And I think you all know for sure about the collapse of banks in California, in New York, in Switzerland and beyond that are roiling the financial markets. What you have heard much less about are the actualities of mass struggles in the world designed to go after that kind of an issue. What do I mean? Millions of people have been in the streets of France now for quite a while. And tens of thousands have been in the streets of Greece quite a while. And it's all about governments and big businesses getting together to avoid paying taxes in a difficult economic time by loading the costs of the decline of Western capitalism onto the mass of people. In the case of one example, not maintaining the safety rules of railroads. In another example, not maintaining proper supervision on the profit-driven decisions of private banks. This outrages people as it should. It hurts people badly. And in Greece and France, there's a mass response to it. There isn't yet in the United States. And I want to talk about that. What do we have instead? We have a pathetic struggle, unreal in its basis, between our two old, tired political parties. So in the case of the railroad disaster in East Palestine, we had the Trump people blaming Biden and the Biden people blaming Trump. Transportation Secretary Buttigieg classically pointing the finger as if this blame wasn't on both of their heads. Republicans and Democrats alike have failed to manage our railroad system have failed to supervise the private railroad system, have capitulated to the demands of the railroad companies to remove or lighten or lessen the safety regulations put in after previous catastrophes, just like the one in East Palestine. And we have the same pathetic story elsewhere. New York Governor Hoshul, speaks as if we're supposed to believe her about having a laser focus on safety, her words, as if she and the Democratic Party of New York and the governor before her, Mr. Cuomo, hadn't also contributed to relaxing the regulations of safety for the railroads. The story never stops. We have had railroad disasters for the entire history of railroads in this country and always for the same reason, profit-driven shortcuts on the safety question and then a catastrophe 
and then a lot of noise and reforms, and then they are weakened and deluded, and we have another catastrophe and another outcry. Unbelievable. The mass of people in the streets of Greece and France, that's a whole nother story. That's not so easy to fob off. And that's why that tradition is so important in those countries and why it has been so successful. Greece had a horrible train disaster a few weeks ago. And the French are fighting their government and their ruling class of businesses who don't want to pay the taxes that would be necessary to give the pension at age 62 that has been won over decades of struggle by the French working class, and they won't have it. No minor matter, and the lesson for Americans there is obvious. You need to have another political party, one that's not in bed with the business community, one that's not in bed with the game of pretend reform and pretend limits on profitability in the name of safety. You got to have a party that isn't putting capitalism and its profits first. My next update has to do with high tech companies, companies that have been laying off hundreds of thousands of workers in recent months. And I want to drive home what that means. Number one, it worsens the inequality of income in our country. You're, you're depriving workers whose wages and incomes were significant of those wages and incomes. You're making them poorer. And you're making everybody they spent money on poorer. Meanwhile, money that isn't being used to pay their salaries is being used to buy back shares of the same company's stock in the stock market. And you know what that does when the company starts buying its own stock? It pushes the price up of those stocks. And who does that advantage? The people who own such stocks. And let me remind you a basic statistic. The richest 10% of people in this country own 80% of the stocks. So if you substitute a stock buyback program for hiring hundreds of thousands of workers, you're making workers poor and the rich richer. That's what you're doing. And who's doing it? The boards of directors of the high-tech companies. You know, Apple, Google, Intel, all of that. A tiny group of people that you could get in a small auditorium, all of them, all the boards of directors of, say, the 20, 30, 40 biggest high-tech companies That's a small, tiny number of people are making the decision to worsen the inequality of income and wealth by using money to buy back shares rather than to keep engineers and others working. What a study in the undemocratic damage our economic system does. And the last update for this morning is really painful, because it's one more sign of the growing contrasts of American capitalism. As it declines, it becomes more and more unequal. That's why the tensions in our society are rising. That's why the social problems are getting worse. 
That's why the incompetence or inability of our leaders to cope is becoming so much more obvious. I want to share with you a study newly completed in toward the end of last year, 2022, produced in and by uh, the University of Southern California, USC, and in particular, the medical school there, known as the Keck, K-E-C-K, Keck Medical School. A study was undertaken of Los Angeles County in California, a study of its food insecurity problem. In other words, hunger. What is the problem of hunger? How many people are not able to get enough food to live a normal, healthy life? That is what they were studying. Why now? Because they knew already at the end of last year that in March of 2023, that's right, just a very small time ago, would be the last month that about 1.4 million people in Los Angeles County alone would no longer get their pandemic era supplements in terms of funds for food. The SNAP program or what we used to call food stamps. The eligibility for them was not renewed. Thank you, Mr. Biden, Democrats and Republicans. So the 1.4 people who received these supplements won't. All the affected households will get at least $95 less per month to buy food than they used to, and some will get as much as $250 less per month to buy food. 37% of the poor in LA, those 1.4 who are getting food stamps of one kind or another, 37% of them, over a third of the poor, right, experienced food insecurity last year. In other words, they were poor enough that they didn't know whether they would have enough food at their next mealtime and often experienced insufficient food to get by. 33% of black and Latino families versus 11% of white families experienced food insecurity. Let me, let me stress, if you have that many people that are in trouble financially getting food stamps and you have this number that are hungry, we are talking about hundreds of thousands of people in one county, Los Angeles County, big county, but one county, are having trouble with their food. of food insecure households included children. If you know anything about nutrition and the human body, you'll know that children suffer all kinds of long-term difficulty if they're not given enough food. The immorality of this, I can't even begin to touch it. The absurdity 
in a country as wealthy as ours, which just committed over a hundred billion dollars to a war in another country, but cannot deal with the people who haven't enough food. Those of you who take morality or ethics seriously, I'll leave to you finding some way to justify something as outrageous as all of this. I'm an economist, so I want to comment on the irrationality of a system like this. You don't feed people enough, you make every other physical, medical, uh, mental health problem worse. Everybody knows that, countless statistics confirm it. We are going to create an entire generation of people presenting all kinds of physical and mental health problems, costing this society vast amounts of money to give them the medical care they'll try to get for the diseases we could have made less serious or avoided had we dealt with the problem of hunger when they were kids. Come on. It's immoral, it's irrational, and it's a financial waste. The cost of keeping rich people rich is becoming unbearable in this declining capitalist system. Mm -hmm. We've come to the end of the first half of today's show. Please stay with me. I think you'll find the second half interesting and important as well. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. I want to address particularly today those of you that have felt at one moment or another over recent weeks, months, even years, a kind of sadness, maybe even a touch of depression about how things are developing, especially here in the United States, but globally. Quite a few folks have been feeling powerless, not clear about a way forward, and yet deeply and increasingly distressed by the rising inequality, the instability, the polarizing political uh, hostilities everywhere, and are upset, and rightly so, by right-wing impulses and movements that come to the fore, and wondering and worrying about a way forward. Is there one? What might it be? I want with you to go through a moment of American history when that kind of feeling was widespread and was overcome, because I want to leave you with the lesson what we were able to do before, we can do again, only even better this time. So I want to go back about 100 years to the 1920s and 30s to talk about what happened there. The 1920s were a time of despair and upset, covered over by a kind of frenetic energy. The frenetic energy was captured in the phrase, the roaring 20s, which is what people talked about. The image was of flappers dancing. The image was of excess. The image was of of parties in Florida as the land was gobbled up for resorts and all of that. But the truth is, people were becoming increasingly depressed and for good reason. 
The labor movement in those years was tired and old. It had fought valiant struggles at the end of the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th. There had been the explosion of interest in the American Socialist Party and its leader, Eugene Victor Debs. But the war, World War I, and the decline of the Socialist Party and the tired decline of the labor movement left people in the kind of mood they are in now. That's why I'm picking it. But something amazing happened in the 1930s. An entirely new labor movement exploded onto the scene. We had literally the opposite in the 1930s called the CIO relative to what we had had before, the AFL. The AFL organized skilled workers into relatively small units who were able to get, because they were skilled, decent wages, since it was difficult for an employer to replace a skilled worker with someone off the street. The CIO, Congress of Industrial Organizations, started by John L. Lewis, the head of the Mine Workers Union in America, set its sights on all workers, skilled, semi-skilled, unskilled, industry by industry. And across the 1930s, they organized millions. They became much bigger than the AFL. But more importantly, they showed working people that if you get together and you set your sights on it, you can do something in the United States that people had despaired of doing, organizing millions of people into labor unions that were militant and powerful. There is no reason to believe that what we in fact accomplished in the United States in the 20s and 30s, that transformation cannot be done again. Likewise, with an older, tired labor movement being upstaged, if you like, by a surging new one. It's happened before. It can happen again. In the 1920s, the American working class was really beset by a number of really bad scenes. There was the persecution of militant immigrants workers, the famous Sacco and Vanzetti case in the 1920s, the Palmer raids in which people were called socialists or communists or anarchists, and the police doing the work that the business community wanted, trying to crush efforts to organize unions, efforts to organize social movements to advance the conditions of the mass of working people. We know the Southern version of it, the Ku Klux Klan and lynching. Mm. We had a country Mm. that was repressing the efforts of oppressed people to break out of their oppression. And we thought, wow, how depressing. Flapper era, not much happening in the way of social progress. And then all these right-wing repressive experiences, again, similar to today. And then what did we have? The Great Depression hit, and in a few years, we had an upsurge 
of left-wing progressive organizations. In the 1930s, the dominant reality for most Americans was an active communist party, two active socialist parties, and a democratic party transformed from sleepy, elite, rich family domination, its donors, if you like, into a party that had a powerful left wing of CIO unions, two socialist parties, and a communist party. And I want to stress what they were able to accomplish, the, that alliance, later called the New Deal Coalition, Communist, Socialist, and the CIO Industrial Union Movement. Only because of their agitation and their demands did a center-of-the-road president like Franklin Roosevelt become a left-leaning president that was all forced from below by this movement. And let's see what they got. For those of you who are skeptical of what can be achieved, the social security system. Think about it with me. In the midst of a depression, millions of people out of work, the government had no money because out of work people and, and shut down factories didn't pay taxes. The government had no money. People were desperate. We created the first social security system in American history. The president had to go before the American people on the radio and say, we've created a system. Everybody who gets to be 65 years of age or older will get a pension, a check from the government in rewarding them for a lifetime of work in an office, a factory, a store, or at home. Here's a check every month for the rest of your life. We're going to give you a dignified old age. We're going to give you a retirement. We're going to do something for the mass of people. Wow. Number two. We got mass federal unemployment insurance. We've never had that before. You lose your job, you go wait in line at the church for a food handout. Now you get a, it's an insurance program. You, you get a check every week for a year or two to help you find another job. Number three, we passed the first minimum wage. Employers could not disrespect human beings by paying them less than a living wage. And for the unemployed, the government created a federal jobs program that gave 15 million unemployed people a job, an income, an ability to keep their home by meeting their mortgage payment, and so on. So don't tell me that we can't have a powerful left-wing movement. Those benefits, and I just gave you the four big ones, there are many more, they were achieved by a union between a labor movement and social movements. In those days, the social movements were organized in and through two socialist and one communist party. Today we have what we call social movements, but they're not yet unified in a political party. And when that happens, they may again have the ability to win enormous gains so powerful and so beloved by the American people that we, despite efforts to get rid of them, we have social security, unemployment compensation, a minimum wage to this day. 
We don't have public employment because both the Republican and Democratic parties have betrayed that promise to the American people. <laughs> but I want to leave you with a balanced picture. There were things that were failed to be done. What, what the struggles of the 1930s show, how much you can achieve, how far you can reform a capitalism, how far the government can compensate for the failures, the injustices, and the inequalities of private capitalism. The failure was not to recognize that you have to change the system if the reforms you achieve are to survive. You have to change the system because if you don't, every one of those reforms will confront the capitalist, the employer class, with a problem to solve, with an obstacle to overcome. Those changes won by the working class in the 1930s came at the expense of profits and the employers and the corporations want to maximize profits. As they tell us, that's what they're in business to do. So they had an incentive to undo the new deal, to get rid of social security. They've been trying that for decades, to get rid of un unemployment compensation been trying for decades to get rid of the minimum wage. Well, the inflation allows them to do that. The minimum wage is $7.25 last set in 2009, hasn't been raised since then, even though prices have gone up a lot since then every year. You're savaging the minimum wage. They, they won on that, took it back, destroyed it. And they've never done public jobs the way they did in the 30s ever again. So it turns out, if you leave the system in place, you're leaving in place the business community that has every incentive to undo whatever reforms you were able to win. And they've done it. That's what the last 50 years of American history is about. In Europe, they call it austerity. Whatever you call it, it's taking back the reforms. What's the lesson here? The lesson is two things. One. We can, if we give ourselves to it, organize the movements, the relationships, the commitments, the feeling to move this country in a progressive direction. We've done it before and we can do it again. A tired old labor movement is not an, an obstacle we can't overcome. Right wing lurching around, we overcame lynching and the Ku Klux Klan at least to a re remarkable extent. And we overcame the other right-wing obstacles to achieve a left-wing upsurge we can be proud of. But we can't leave in place the employer-employee relationship, because if we do, the employers will again undo the reforms if and when we win them. This time we have to recognize Along with the reforms, you got to change the system. If we make workers a community that democratically runs the enterprise, we will have in place the structure that will make reforms, but also preserve reforms because we will have removed both the incentive and the capability in the hands of a minority to keep themselves 
from having to make an economic reality that we're capable of, but keep denying ourselves in the name of maintaining a profit system benefiting only a few. Thanking you for your attention. Let me say again that I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Okay, we're going to go one more program, everybody. This is Stories from the Stage, and we're just going to listen. Here we go. And the World Channel. Learn more at linktv.org. It's 1993. I'm fresh out of college, and I decide to move to the Czech Republic and make a living as a basketball player. I found myself at the headquarters of the Russian Orthodox Church in order to bring the Muppets to Moscow. When you lose someone, the ick and the sad, it passes. And for something really small and incidental, it's back. The feeling of the person. Tonight's theme is Never the Same. This program is made possible in part by contributions from viewers like you. Thank you. We are defined by our turning points. Whenever they come along, we hold our breath, take a look in the rearview mirror, and forge a path ahead toward a new future. Tonight, our amazing storytellers are going to share their own tales of reaching their own personal crossroads and everything that happened after. My name is Joanne Peltier. I'm from Montreal, Canada, and I'm a writer and a storyteller, and I work in communications. I'm also the producer of something called Good Gyne, Bad Gyne, a storytelling show about women's gynecology and health issues. And I'm not thinking about the next story. I train uh, scientists and startups on how to do storytelling, and I'm a boxing judge. Where did the interest in boxing uh, come from? It started uh, late for me in life, in my 40s, uh, being stuck in traffic on my way to work, stuck in my life a little bit, and stuck in a way on the street that the best view I had was to the to the right, to, into this boxing gym, and I, I kind of got curious one day, tired of just feeling stuck, I walked in. Wow. Can you talk about finding a story in small moments and how, how that works out for you? I find inspiration in relatable humanity in these really tiny moments, these very commonplace sorts of things. I've told stories about trips to Ikea and standing in line. I've told stories about waiting for surgery. What I find is people in the audience can relate to the feeling of those moments. We've all waited in line. We've all waited for stuff. I think they're really relatable. I have a landline still. And I have a lifetime subscription to something called Roofing Canada. Both because of my dad. I transferred the landline and the mail uh, from his business over after he died. He was a roofer. He died about 15 years ago. More than just a roofer, dad was the guy, the roofing guy, an expert known even in parts of the U.S. And he loved roofing so much so that any car ride with dad would include a detailed commentary on architecture but focused exclusively on the roof. (laughs) He would say, look up, look up, the roofers, those are the real artists and every roof has a story. So the landline resulted in people calling, looking for his services over the years. 
One call stayed with me. A man's voice, older and unsteady, asking for dad, but could I call back? I don't recognize the name, but I'm curious, so I call back. And he says he doesn't remember calling, but says, please tell me again. I say, my dad, the roofing guy. I'm his daughter. I'm pretty sure you called me. He remembers. He apologizes. He's ill. He's forgetting a lot. They work together. He says, there was nobody like your father. He knew everything. He tells me, my father's reports were so good, he still had them. And he doesn't remember my father dying, but he says, maybe he was at a funeral. Did I do the eulogy? I say, yes, that was me. Maybe we did meet all those years ago. We don't know each other, but it, it feels like we're catching up. He says, what did he die of? It was cancer, right? And I say, yeah, a glioblastoma multiform, a fast-moving brain tumor. He was gone in three months. I recite that like it was yesterday. I look at my watch and it's 30 minutes and we're still talking. And he wants to tell me about my dad. It's stuff I already know, but it's nice to hear. He says, your father was kind and honest and hardworking. He was really smart. He was a swell guy. Yeah, yeah, he, he was all those things. Thank you. He was a great dad. I loved him. He says, you know, you sound a lot like him. And before I can even think of what to say to that, he says, but wait, what did he teach you about roofing? How much do you know? And I say, well, actually, thank you. No one has ever asked me that question. My roofing education began when I was very young, and I'm happy to talk about it. I mean, I I never went up on the roof with dad because I'm terrified of heights, but uh, I remember going to the roofing company with my dad on the weekends and those afternoons with dad, he showed me how to use roofing shingles and how to cut copper and tin and metal. And I tell him, I know a lot about how to use rivets. And I know a lot about asphalt, that tar that always stuck to my shoes. And how I remember dad bought me a Coke every weekend. Oh. He bought me my first protractor. I had a few. This is so nice. I say, thank you. It's nice to remember dad this way. And he says, you know, it sounds just like your father. He says, by the way, every roof has a story. (laughs) Huh? Yeah. Yeah. So dad used to say that. And I want to ask him more about this. But all I can think is damn grieving. You see, the thing is, when you lose someone, the ick and the sad, it passes. It passes so much you think you're going to forget them. And then for something really small and incidental, It's back, not the ick and the sad, but the feeling of the person. For me, a Coke and a protractor brought him back, my wonderful dad. But really, anytime I look at a roof, metal tin, copper, my father is everywhere. And now there's this call. I haven't asked him why he's calling. It's an hour now. And I tell him, look, there are no coincidences I transferred stuff to me. My father was vibrant and working and the tumor came and it was over quickly. And in the haste of managing the end of his life and his business, I just transferred stuff to me. I thought I was being efficient. You know, one less thing to do later was really one more thing to hang on to. He says, your father must have been so proud of you. I think of your father a lot. Okay. (laughs) 
I don't know what to say now, but I try. I say, hey, were you and my dad close? And he just says, his voice crackling a little, your father was a great, great man. He was a great friend to me. It's not just any call. It's 90 minutes now. And and now we're talking like, you know, when you have to end the call, but you don't really want to. And and, and I say, hey, I want to tell you how I feel. I'm, I'm so moved by this call. And I don't normally say stuff like this, but I got to tell you what I feel. My heart is full. Can I call you again? Would you like to call me? We could talk about roofing. He, he says maybe, but he won't remember the conversation. He remembers his wife dying some years ago, and he says that was very tough. Now what he remembers is from really long ago, work, friends, right now, my dad. You sound so like him, he says. I have to go, but I want you to know. Of all the things I have forgotten and I will forget, I will never forget your father. Keep looking up. Every roof has a story. I called back. A few weeks later, I left a message. Why? Damn grieving. The recording on his line, it was his wife's voice. He had told me he never changed the message. He never changed the landline. He never called back. But it's okay, because my heart still full. Thank you. I live out in western Massachusetts in a small town called Longmeadow. I grew up in the Berkshires, uh, and I'm a novelist. Have you had a whole lot of experience uh, telling stories on a stage, or are you going to be doing this evening? I've had very little experience, um, which is why I'm so terrified of it tonight. But um, out where I live, I found um, somebody's putting on a monthly uh, storytelling series in a small town uh, near where I live. Uh, a town's called East Hampton, and I started to go to that. And I realized quickly that it's a very different animal than... Uh, than writing, the things you do when you're trying to tell a story live, the way you breathe, the way you carry yourself, the way you pace things, even the words you use are completely different. I understand that you write both fiction and nonfiction, and I'm wondering, can you give us some perspective on what you see as the differences in that process? In fiction, you can be creative, outrageous, you can take kind of both structural and stylistic risks that might not work as well in nonfiction. And nonfiction, I think, requires the writer in a different way to be really aware of all the perspectives that could come into a piece to broaden your perspective on other people in your life and the world. So it's 1993, I'm fresh out of college, and I decide to move to the Czech Republic and make a living as a basketball player. <laughs> Believe it or not, there are some impediments. First, I do not speak any Czech, and I do not know anybody living in the Czech Republic. The Iron Curtain has just come down. There's no Google. There's no Amazon. The internet is dial-up. There are surprisingly few books on Czech basketball in the local library, so I don't even know if they have leagues there, but I assume they must. The Dream Team has just won gold in Barcelona. The whole world loves basketball. 
But that brings me to, to my second problem. I'm not that good at basketball. <laughs> I know. I look like I would be. <laughs> I mean, I'm good enough to make my high school team. But I can't make the team in college, and I try out twice. So what's this about? Well, it feels important. I feel like I've lost myself in college, lost a sense of who I am and who I want to be. And when I graduate, I feel anxious and unmoored. Maybe these aren't uncommon feelings, but rather than deal with them honestly, I bury them beneath layers of grandiose delusion. I'll be a novelist. I'll be a spy. I'll be an international basketball star who's also a spy. <laughs> and then I'll write a novel about it. <laughs> I'm an English major. I've read The Unbearable Lightness of Being and told people that I understand it. <laughs> I wrote an entire honors thesis on Central Europe from a dorm room in Boston. My advisor called it breathtakingly naive. <laughs> But it's 1993. Everybody's going to Prague. I don't know them personally, but I hear that. They say it's beautiful and that it's free and that it's safe and that it's cheap and that you can be what you want to be there. It's really more of an idea than a place. And how am I going to get there? Basketball. I love basketball. Played it my whole life. Played with my father. He played in college. The basketball court is one of the few places where I feel like I know what I'm doing. Still, I have some reservations about this plan. So do my parents, my friends, pretty much everybody I talk to has reservations. <laughs> so I seek a fifth opinion. <laughs> I go to a man I kind of know who lives in my town. This man's name is Jan. He's Czech. And he grew up in Prague. At this point in his life, Jan was in his early 70s. A, a small, dignified man with white hair and a white mustache and piercing blue eyes. He worked as a cross-country ski instructor. He was kind of a local legend. He was an actual World War II hero. When he was my age, John lost his entire family when the Nazis invaded Czechoslovakia during World War II. He managed to flee at the last minute, first east and then south into the Balkans, before he was caught near the Italian border, hanging from the undercarriage of a train. They put him in prison camp in Italy, and he escaped twice. The second time, he made it all the way to England, where he joined the Czech division of the Royal Air Force and flew bombing missions back over Prague in order to drive the Germans out. This is the guy, I thought to myself. If anybody can identify with the postgraduate angst of a middle-class American 22-year-old in peacetime, <laughs> it's this guy. Jan invited me over. It was wintertime. I drove down a, a long and winding dirt path through the woods to his house, which was up on a snow-covered hill. There was a giant white husky in the drive, and the dog glared at me until Jan came out and said something to it in Czech. At least I assumed it was Czech. I didn't know. We went in. We sat in his living room, and I unfurled my master plan, which was to move to Prague, to find a place to live, to find a basketball team, to convince that team to let me try out, to make the team, and then to become the Czech version of Magic Johnson. <laughs> Jan knew nothing about basketball <laughs> at all, but he knew about Prague, and he told me things like, here's where the U.S. Embassy is, and here's the hospital where they speak English, 
<laughs> I told him about my high school all-star days. I told him about how much I loved the game. I told him about all the Czech novels I had read. And then, because I wasn't getting a whole lot back, I started telling him about my self-doubt, the feeling that I'd lost the thread of my life, and I needed to do something daring and sort of kind of ridiculous to try to find it again. I was hoping for some sort of reassurance from me, from me on, some sort of endorsement that things would be okay, that this wasn't a crazy plan. But I wasn't really getting one, because it was a crazy plan. Jan knew it. I knew it, actually. We all knew it. And after an hour, nothing had changed. I started to wonder if there was still time to apply to law school. <laughs> I got up to leave, and I went to the door, and Jan stopped me. He put his hand on my shoulder, and he looked me in the eyes. And he said, David, whatever you do, don't back out. Don't back. That was it. That was the endorsement I needed. I felt my head clear. I felt taller. I felt stronger. I had a mission. I walked back to my car. The dog looked at me differently. <laughs> Flash forward six months. I'm on a bus on the outskirts of Prague with my teammates heading to a game. We play in the third tier of the Czech Basketball Federation. I'm the only American in our division. We don't win much and we don't get paid. And I'm not the best player. But the season we have is magical. My teammates take me in. They become my friends. They show me their lives, their families, their country, the real, the real country. I learn important Czech phrases like, look out behind you. <laughs> and I was open. <laughs> we, we drink in the pubs where the poets wrote. We walk down the alleys where the dissidents hid from the secret police. At the end of that season, we go to a small village in France, in the French Alps, and we play in a tournament against teams from all over Europe. And we come in third, and we bring a trophy back to Prague. Whatever you do, Jan said that day in his house, he said, don't back up. And on that bus, I realized that he was saying, don't back out of my driveway. <laughs> That would make more sense <laughs> because I did back out of his driveway and I wound up in a snowbank. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because I also wound up in Prague. <laughs> because it's not, it's not the finding that's important. It's the looking. Thank you. Natasha Lance Rogoff, and I'm from Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm an author, and I recently published a book called Muppets in Moscow, The Unexpected, Crazy, True Story of Making Sesame Street in Russia. And I have also worked for the past 20 or 30 years in television, making children's television, documentary, films, and news. You spent a great deal of time producing and reporting within Russia, and I'm wondering what fascinates you about that country? I was seduced by Russia early on as a teenager, and I think it really came from reading the literature and connecting to that world, which was soulful, passionate, and uh, often cruel. 
And then I studied Russian in college and went to uh, what was then the Soviet Union when I was uh, in my early 20s. And I stayed there for the next 12 years. After listening to your story tonight, what would you hope that our audience most takes away with them? That it takes time for societies to change. On a very unusually hot day in Moscow in June of 1995, I found myself uh, with a group of child education experts who had gathered to create a new children's television show. We were meeting at the Danilov Monastery, which is the headquarters of the Russian Orthodox Church, for a three-day seminar um, with the production team and the research experts, both from the United States and from all over the former Soviet Union. Sesame Street had approached me a while earlier in order to bring the Muppets to Moscow. This was a historic period of time when the Soviet Empire had just collapsed uh, a few years earlier. And the idea was that the Muppets would be ideal ambassadors to bring idealistic values of tolerance and freedom of expression to the post-communist society. I speak Russian. And I had already been living in the Soviet Union for 10 years, covering news first and then made documentaries uh, about the fall of the Soviet Union. But I thought this incredibly ambitious project would, I, I really didn't know how the Russian community would take it and how the Muppets would play in dark, pessimistic, angst-ridden Russia. So we're all sitting around this conference table and most of the educators who are there um, really weren't familiar with the show uh, at all. So we thought the best way to familiarize them was to show them clips. And when we finished the video, we turned it off. There was silence. The first thing one of the participants said, uh, you do realize that our show is going to have to be a great deal more sophisticated than that. <laughs> and then he went on to say, our children are much smarter than the Americans. <laughs> so I found that really insulting, but this was the beginning of our conversation. <laughs> so I really didn't want to you know, start off that way. And I wanted to steer the conversation away from kind of the us versus them. And so I said, well, why don't we all propose some scenarios that could be in the show uh, that reflect your culture and your values. And we will see how these scenarios will be put into place so that uh, uh, children will have the skills and values they need to thrive in an open society. And then as an example, I say, we could show children running a lemonade stand. That was met with horror. <laughs> One of the educators says, that is shameful. You can't have children selling things on the street. And then someone else said, the only people who do that are criminals and mafia. And of course, that's true. Under communism, it was illegal. All independent commerce was illegal. So people selling things on the street, you know, could go to jail. And then we showed another clip, which was a little boy in a wheelchair, um, it's a very familiar Sesame Street clip where uh, the boy is flying a kite with a friend in the park. And there's a song in, that goes, uh, 
me and my chair, we go everywhere. You may know this this song. The clip plays and, and then it finishes. And a math teacher stands up and says, it would be exploitative to show children in wheelchairs on a television show. So now I'm thinking, we're not, we're not doing very well here. And this is just the first day. <laughs> so then uh, this other woman says, quite innocently, I don't understand why normal normal children, would want to watch a TV show with in it. This conversation continues, people add to it. And at this point, I'm kind of um, uncomfortable with the use of the word which keeps getting repeated over and over again for children who have disabilities. And I, I wonder, you know, if these enlightened educators seem to show so little empathy, maybe Russia's not ready for Sesame Street. <laughs> so as I'm sitting there, you know, thinking I'm feeling pretty despondent about the whole thing, then this woman says, you Americans don't understand. She said, you know, in our country, all is being torn apart. And um, most uh, children, they can't afford to have a wheelchair. Our government has fallen apart. The health care doesn't is supply wheelchairs to children. These children are trapped in their beds. And if they see children with wheelchairs on a TV show, they'll just feel sad. So the discussion continues among the group. And they're all different opinions. Then there's a quiet voice from the back of the room. And she says, uh, hello, my name is Ludmila. And she says, I am from the region of Chuvash, which stretches from the Volga to Siberia. She says, our region uh, was used during communist times as a dumping ground for hazardous chemicals. So we, our region has the highest rate of deformities uh, for children. And I work with these children every day. I laugh with them, we play together, and these children yearn to play with normal children. She says that I don't understand why you people don't understand that a child who has a problem with his legs is still talented in other areas. She urges the group to create scenarios where these children are presented and portrayed as human and a valuable part of the society. When she finishes speaking, I look around and I see that the people who had spoken earlier are kind of shifting uncomfortably in their seats. And some of the people have started crying. But what I realized from that day with Ludmila is that she had actually given us all a gift. She gave my colleagues an understanding of the role that they could play in transforming their country to a tolerant, open society. And what she gave me was exactly what I needed, which was the ability to feel again and empathy. This program is made possible in part by contributions from viewers like you. Thank you. The Stories from the Stage podcast, with extraordinary true stories, wherever you listen to podcasts. Consider supporting more great storytelling at give.worldchannel.org slash stories. Okay. Um, well... Um, 
Did you say you had anything short, Rama? Mm. No? Mm-mm. Well? I have this Galactic Federation message. Oh, yes. Mm. Yeah, let's do that before we say goodnight. Okay. Let's do that. Tell everybody what this is. This is Aurora Ray bringing us a message. Entering the fifth dimension, the gateway is a huge existence. that there's an endless supply of free electricity constantly flowing in the ground beneath you? Did you know that there's an easy way to harness that free electricity? A transmission from the Galactic Federation. Dear ones, the Galactic Federation is a group of extraterrestrial civilizations existing outside of our Milky Way galaxy. These beings or groups possess advanced technologies that allow them to travel intergalactic distances. They are part of a federation comprising multiple races, and their leader is known as the Supreme Commander. The federation works in conjunction with another group called the Ashtar Command. I'm delighted to share with you today an important message from the Galactic Federation. Dear Earthlings, we are the Galactic Federation. We come to you in peace, love, and concern for humanity. We wish to extend an invitation to those of you who have been reading this article to join us on a very exciting adventure. This is an adventure that will take place in the higher realms of consciousness, and that will be unlike anything you have ever experienced before. This is a journey into your own inner universe, one from which you will return as a fully conscious creator being. You will be imbued with wisdom, knowledge, talents, and abilities far beyond anything you can imagine or would ever want for yourself. We have been monitoring your planet for many years now, patiently waiting. We have watched as your world has become more and more out of balance. We have been witnessing the persistent deterioration of your health and mental well-being. We know you are deeply concerned about the present state of affairs on your planet. We understand that you feel powerless to do anything about it. We are here to tell you that you are not powerless. You each possess a tremendous amount of power and influence, but most of you are unaware of this fact. Many of you are even unaware that you exist. That is why we are taking this opportunity to make our presence known to you. We want you to understand how much we care about the Earth and its people, including you. Join us in creating a new Earth reality. We are here for one purpose only, and that is to assist humanity in creating a new reality for Earth. You see, each life form on your planet is connected through an energy field known as Source Energy or God-Goddess Energy. Each of you possesses a unique aspect of God-Goddess Energy. Have you ever wondered how the world works? Or how is life created? Or why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? You are in the right place. Your galactic friends are eager to continue sharing all of the answers to your queries with you. We shall be responded with love and respect for your free will, as always. 
There is no need to worry about our presence here on Earth because you are already surrounded by us. Our mission is to help the planet. We are here to assist the Earth and its inhabitants from an energetic point of view so that you can free yourselves from this matrix of conditioning of which you have become prisoners. We are here to assist humanity in awakening from this deep slumber in which you have been held captive for thousands upon thousands of years by your own creation. We are here as a service to humanity for you to evolve into higher consciousness. We are here to assist you in creating a brighter future, away from all darkness, suffering, and pain, regardless of whether it appears on a global or personal level. We wish to invite everyone to participate in the creation of a new field of consciousness that we are calling Unity Consciousness. Unity Consciousness is based on the assumption that there are no differences between humans on Earth or anywhere else in the universe. All beings are equal parts of God-Goddess Consciousness. All beings were created from the same source of unconditional love. And all beings are thus brothers and sisters, inseparably linked through their connection to Source. It is time to wake up and realize that humanity itself is facing a critical turning point. Your species is at a crossroads in its evolution as a race of beings on planet Earth. We come to you today to remind you that at this time, there is much work taking place behind the scenes that affect your planet and all of its inhabitants. The Galactic Federation stands strongly in support of the Lightworkers and all of those who are working to promote humanity's spiritual evolution on your planet. We are here for you, each one of you, and we send you our blessings and our love. We want to talk about important issues that concern your planet and the direction it is now taking. It is important that we do this now, because if you continue along the path that you are currently following, it will inevitably lead to disaster for your world as well as for yourselves. We have asked you in the past not to give your power away so easily. Please take this message seriously. Humanity has given its power away to those who would seek to enslave it through many different forms of deception and manipulation. We've come to support you from the non-physical realms in your ascension process back to full consciousness. We are here. We see you and we see the changes that are happening on your planet. The great changes for the better, but there is more to come. It will be in time. The whole of humanity is going through a shift, and this shift is what many people call ascension. Many people also call it the new earth or new reality, where the consciousness of all humanity rises to a higher level. Let us tell you that this process is already happening and that it will continue until all humans are in full consciousness. You already know this to be true because you have seen the new energies yourself, how they affect you and how they change your life. We want to tell you that things will get much better than they are right now. If you do not believe us or anyone else who tells you these things, then please follow your own intuition. Look deep inside yourself and ask yourself if this makes sense to you and if it feels right. This doesn't mean that when we tell you these things, we are lying to you. But if this doesn't resonate with your heart and mind, then we ask for your forgiveness for having disturbed your peace. Humanity is at a crossroads. 
the critical mass of awakened individuals has reached a point of no return. The new paradigm is here, and it's up to you to decide your future. The consciousness shift is already in full effect, and the planetary liberation process is moving along its destined course. Your contribution at this time is to remind yourself that you are sovereign, powerful beings capable of manifesting whatever you desire. Instead of giving your power away, start using it to create your ideal reality. You have been given everything you need. It's up to you to decide whether to harvest the fruits of the present moment or keep waiting for something better on the horizon. You can be part of the solution or part of the problem. It is up to you. You are not helpless victims anymore. It's time for you to take action and become responsible for your planet and your fellow human beings. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Aho. This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. I think we have a good moment here to share with everyone with our sister Rainbird. And I got this talking stick here in my hand. And all those little people and the angels and the fairies and the feathers and the rainbows and the crystals. And Excalibur and Quetzalcoatl, that emerald serpent feather one's back here with us too on this talking stick. And so I do pass it to you. Here it comes, Rainbird. Oh, nice. I got it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tonight. Mm. What, a, <laughs> what an everything day. And yeah. we this, <laughs> Absolutely. We could do this some more tomorrow. I mean, this afternoon. Yeah, so lots of gratitude and we'll... Play that fire for Alberta that's on fire. Put that yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. And every other good thing that needs to happen, we'll do it in our green time. And join again this afternoon. So thank you. And I pass this talking stick to you, Rama. Here it comes. Okay. All right, Rama. What you got? This is um, a new song from Enya. That I haven't heard. <laughs> wow. It's about the whales. Oh, yes. What's it called, honey? Wild Child. <laughs> Wild Child. Yes, indeed. Let's hear that one, Ralph. Whenever heartburn strikes, get past relief with Tums. Yes, we're on thin ice. And everything is...
every day. What a day. As we end this everything day. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was just going to read the front uh, uh, word for the night here from Aurora Ray uh, of today's report. She says, each of you has been given a frequency and all of you are being tested with this frequency. The frequency you carry determines who you are and how your life will unfold for better or worse. And so it is. Almost it be. Satnam. Satnam Ji. Aho mitakuyasan. Thirteen thank yous. Honey in the heart. No evil. Live long and prosper. Peace out, everybody. Until this afternoon. Namaste.